What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Well, week zero, it is here this weekend. Maybe it's already happened by the time people are listening to this. If it has, here's the headline for Hawaii Vandy. You ready for this? This is going to be earth shattering stuff that we're going to. Let's hear it. We're looking into the crystal. We, we finished crystal ball week. We're still looking into the crystal ball. Your headline, AJ Swan lights up Hawaii for six TD passes in blowout week zero win. Earth shattering. Yeah. I can't, you know, obviously Hawaii is going through a tough time right now, so I can't make any jokes about them, but I hope, uh, you know, I hope this weekend is at least a little bit kinder to them. Don't I feel like a jerk now? My God, jeez, man. I'm yeah. sorry. I have you've built a filter into my brain where I start to make fun of something, and I think who could get offended. And I was like, yeah, they're having a tough time. I don't want to talk about Hawaii going through it, but you know, it's going to be a beautiful time. So hopefully, it can get a little bit of distraction at least. That's what college football's for, right? Yes, you're you're exactly right. Hopefully, we get some good college football this weekend. If nothing else, just just again, don't plan your entire day watching college football start to finish because you will be disappointed if you do that. You oh, yeah. plan a couple of things and you get to watch college football interchangeably. Maybe you watch one game start to finish, but don't sit there and be like, oh, I'm going to watch college football from start to finish all day. Even a psycho like myself, I I can admit I will not be doing that on Saturday. Obviously, I'm going to be able to tune into the Vandy game at night. But other than that, we're going to be like, all right, we're going to watch here and there. We're going to see what, what's on. You know, a game gets interesting, then then you turn it on. But no, you need to have the right the right approach, the right mindset for week zero. We have the right mindset on this show today, plan for today. Aaron Murray's going to join us a bit. We're going to talk about Carson Beck, the Branson Rob- Robinson injury, Georgia three-peating, why he hates Will Rogers, a lot of stuff, Swamp, a little bit of Swamp King stuff at the end with him. And we're also going to do a full review of Swamp King. So if you haven't watched it yet and you don't want us to ruin it, this is your warning. Though, mm-hmm. if you've been on the internet at all, uh, I don't really think there's a whole lot to spoil. So um, you could probably listen to us talk about it. I don't know if you guys before. know this, but Urban Meyer left Florida. I don't want to, no spoilers or anything, okay? But Tim Tebow, no longer still in college. In fact, and this will really shock you, played some baseball after that. So Did not have that in the documentary. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah, we will. Uh, we got we got some uh, some bones to pick, needless to say, with, with the Untold <laughs> yeah. Series. Yeah, but first. 10 chaos scenarios that can actually happen in 2023. I'm kind of surprised I haven't done this yet, knowing how much we like talking about what ifs and uh, the sliding doors and all those things that can happen. Um, Thought this would be a good time to do it. Get not on the record because these are not predictions. These are chaos scenarios. These are the things that would make us go, holy crap, what a Saturday that just was. This can be something that dominates national news that would happen that all of a sudden everybody would be like, hold the phone. This is the biggest story in college football. And there could be individual games that are possible chaos scenarios, but they need to have some pretty big picture implications. Like I'm not going to throw in here. Well, Stanford beats Washington. That's a chaos scenario. It's a chaos scenario for my personal college football playoff prediction, but it's not for the entire landscape of the sport. And this is really about what could happen. Okay. What could happen that could cause chaos? This isn't like, Oh, what if four group of five teams make the last four team college football playoff? Not going to happen. We know that we're going to talk about realistic scenarios and I'm not saying they will happen, but just things that would throw the entire landscape of the sport kind of off of its axis. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Let's start with this first one, and it's one that's been talked about a lot. Texas beats Bama. Probably, based on based on everybody that I've talked to, media days, whatnot, it's the single most popular 
preseason upset. If you're going on record with one, that's that's like kind of it, given the trajectory of where both programs are. This would would bring on more takes probably than any regular season game all year. I I, I truly think that of, of any because if you're talking about both sides, you would get the Texas's back narrative, and then you would get the dynasty is dead because it would be Bama's first non-conference loss since Louisiana Monroe in 2007, and yeah. it would. Think about this. Texas has not beat an AP top five team since 2010, which is nuts. And the funny thing is, and I'll bring this up if this happens, if Texas beats Bama, everybody and their mother will say Texas is back. You know what Texas did the last time they oh, beat Oh, buddy, they'll say that if they play Bama kind of close like they did last year. Don't worry. The, the, score, yeah. the outcome of this game is irrelevant to people saying that. Which is just, it's so unbelievably dumb. And it's why we, we, we were already out there with what it would take for Texas to actually be back. I think it's going to a national championship. I don't even think it's just as simple as getting to the college football playoff. Because the last time right. Texas beat an AP top five team, Will, it was against Nebraska. And then they lost five of six games to close the season. And they missed a bowl game for the first time in 13 years. Texas sure wasn't. Did. Texas was in a very different place then. But this notion that they're automatically back just by beating a top five team. I don't think that's the case, but Texas beating Bama would be bananas. Definite chaos scenario. Very obvious one. Had to get that out there. This is like uh, Russia playing China. I wish both of these teams could lose. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) In what sport would you like to see Russia and China lose the most? Oh, man. Football would be fire, actually. <laughs> I would watch a Russia versus China football game. Sickos Committee would be all over that one. <laughs> that would be actually really – I would be rooting, I would be looking forward to that. Anyway. Second chaos scenario. This is a little bit Texas heavy to start, but I promise it's not all Texas stuff. Quinn Ewers and Joe Milton either put it all together or they get hurt. Either mm. scenario would bring chaos. The most boring result for those two guys would be that they're decent college quarterbacks – who get just more mid. NFL yeah. If, if yeah. they're just if they're just kind of like, oh solid, like maybe are they in the all-conference conversation? That's the most boring path. It, it really is. Yeah. Because if they're great, these two guys are gonna give us some throws that would make us rethink what's physically possible of the human arm. I I, I that is not hyperbole when I say that. I, I don't know if there are two more effortless passers in the sport in recent memory. Then Quinn Ewers and Joe Milton for different, like the, for different reasons, but just the way the ball the ball pops out of their hand. And I'm not the guy who is gaga over arm strength, but I can admit that those two guys are so capable of providing moments that very few people in college football could provide. If either of them gets hurt, that means it's game on for those five star freshman quarterbacks. It's mm-hmm. possible though, and I'll admit. Arch Manning might not see the field if Quinn Ewers goes down because Malik Murphy has been incredible in camp. It's believed that he's going to be number two on the depth chart. Who knows? Like if they're facing a scenario where it's like, oh, maybe they already already have multiple losses. Do you bring in Arch so that, you know, Sark is is trying to do what he can for job security purposes to just show that he's hopium. A little hopium just floated out into the universe. Who knows? But the intrigue of that would be through the roof. And with Tennessee, obviously it'd be a different situation. Nico Iamaliava, we're still crushing the pronunciation of that one. He would be the guy if Joe Milton goes down and the hype that Tennessee fans would feel knowing that it's one thing to have a five-star quarterback. 
It's another to have a great offensive mind like Josh Heupel, who's at the controls of it. And the combination of that with Tennessee fans, that would be just unbelievable anticipation. So either of those two scenarios, like kind of like we talk about with Petrino, the most boring result with Robert Patrick Petrino is it's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's middle of the pack. It's it's decent, but it's not great. If it's seventh amazing, best offense in the SEC, yeah. yeah. If, if Texas A&M has the seventh best offense in the SEC, yeah, then I guess that's the most mid result possible. But I guess I'm just rooting for non mid results for both of those two quarterbacks. I just want to say I don't want to sidetrack too bad here, but you know, if <laughs> Joe Milton does get injured, he had the COVID year, so he technically could come back another no, year. No, he would have to transfer, obviously, no. because of Nico, but. He could actually come back even without the medical redshirt because he played in 2020, which, as we all know, didn't happen. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 2018 redshirt. Mm-hmm. 2019 can't use that redshirt anymore. So that's a year of eligibility yep. that he's used. 2020, 2020 doesn't count. So he's doesn't only count. played one year through three years. No, but that, that doesn't matter. But he's been in college since 2018. Right. So 2019, used one year of eligibility there. 2021, he used an, a year of eligibility there. 2022 mm-hmm. used in year of eligibility there. This is his last year of eligibility. Oh, you're right. I am not counting this year. Okay. So with a medical redshirt, he would get an extra year. Tennessee with a medical redshirt. Next... Yes. yes. Sorry. So they, that's they didn't add the new uh, heading in the Tennessee page. So I was counting wrong. So yes. blame Tennessee. Continue. No, th- those bio pages are, are so difficult, especially post-COVID when you're trying to figure out how many years of eligibility a guy has left. And some yep. of these bio pages aren't updated yet or they'll say like, redshirt freshman like last year it was so weird Robbie Ashford being a third year player and he's listed in a lot of places as a freshman you're like wait a minute what what but but then you kind of look at the eligibility you're like oh yeah he's using his first year of eligibility so that's what it should count for and you don't know if it's academic versus athletic eligibility it's really complicated okay last Texas one Texas isn't back and neither is Sark my guess I think Texas holds on to Sark. I, I think they don't want to start over heading into the SEC. It's worth mentioning AM started over when joined the SEC, worked out pretty well. Johnny Manziel, Kevin Sumlin, that combination was pretty good for a hot minute. By the way, mm-hmm. I've now got Uncle Nate in my mentions. I think I told you that the other day. I don't of know. Of course how. you do. It doesn't how. surprise me at all. We're uh <laughs> we're heading down some weird roads with this Manziel doc. We really are. Um uh, nothing particularly inspiring, but he just had some not so nice things to say about Wright Thompson. We'll just leave it at that. If Texas goes six and six, it seems likely that they would be willing to pay $18 million to fire Sark and then desperately do what they could to try and lock down a long-term commitment for March Manning. That that would be as, as simple as a formula as Texas could follow if they do have that season wherein they aren't back. But that's where the chaos lies. That search for the Texas opening would be nuts. It would be one of the craziest searches in all of college football. I truly mean that because you're getting the SEC dollars now and mm-hmm. the 12 team playoff exists. So maybe there's this belief of even if, you know, even if it kind of limits the search party somehow because people feel like they won't have control and the boosters have too much control, you're still telling yourself, well, just get into the 12 team playoff and, and we'll figure it out. And then eventually I'll get them back on my side. I, don't, I still think that they would cast a very wide net for that replacement. And if the search didn't land on someone that would keep Arch in Austin, and if he's entering the transfer portal, the numbers that would get thrown out there for the NIL stuff, and I realize he's like, he's not doing NIL, and he's he's not doing this, he's not doing that. 
there would be some Jaden Rashada like numbers that would be thrown out there. And then some, mm-hmm. if he was, if he was essentially a free agent in college football. So yeah, that would be total chaos. I don't think it's fair to say that it's big 12 title or bust because what if Texas beats Bama, but then loses two or three regular season games, maybe still gets to a new year six bowl. That would actually be better than the four loss. We're back season that they had in 2018. So I don't know, but I do think if Texas crafts the bed, chaos is going to unfold for sure. A lot of speculation. Yeah, I think that they're going to be like that 12 team playoff is actually underratedly going to help Texas a ton because I mean, Tom Herman would have been a 12 team playoff merchant. Like yep. he would have been right on that bubble of that 12 team playoff every single year. I actually, oddly, I don't, again, whole, I could sidetrack this here, but. I actually kind of don't think he gets fired as quickly under that format because he would have been almost participating or participating a couple of those years. Like the year they beat Georgia, they're probably pretty close to a playoff team. So yeah, I think that uh, I think that there's a lot of hopium to be sold in the 12-team playoff. Even 2020, they would have been knocking on the door. Of, of yeah. Play, like, I, because that, that only was a three-loss team, but mm-hmm. it was still a team that, that was considered to be in contention and could have had something like that on the table. That's going to be the biggest thing for so many of these programs is feeling like you're playing in meaningful games in November and what that means. Instead of just knowing by mid-October you're out of a division title race to know that you can have a playoff berth on the table, it's going to create a lot of those very like fun, kind of chaotic playoff implication atmospheres. And Texas is definitely a team that can benefit from that. Or alternatively, they could be starting over after this year. Speaking of that, Another chaos scenario. One of those big year two coaches is fired. I think they're all safe. I've gone on record saying like, I hate hot seat lists this year because so many of them are just like, oh, and the buyout is blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, the buyout is insane and we can't just ignore those things. But here's what I'm referring to when I say one of those big year two coaches being fired. Billy Napier, buyout of 31 million bucks. Brent Venables, buyout of 29 million bucks. Mario Cristobal, Unknown buyout because Miami's private, but the athletic reported that the contract was 10 years, 80 million bucks. So even if that buyout is only half of the remaining contract, that's still $32 million. That's a lot of money, especially for a university Mm -hmm. that isn't exactly flush with cash in the way that we kind of think Miami is. And then Marcus Freeman. That life wallet cash is a (laughs) depreciating asset right now. I hope those recruits cash those checks already. Might might be a good idea to get in on that uh, very, very, very soon there. The Marcus Freeman thing, like he's not on the hot seat or, or anything like that. And he's got the most fireable contract. That's the only reason he's even in here. Five-year deal reportedly paid him $5 million annually, meaning that he would have just $15 million left on his contract if things went sideways. But Notre Dame gave Ty, Ty Willingham three years. Charlie Weiss got five years. Marcus Freeman's not getting fired after two years, unless mm-hmm. it's a scandal or something like that, which you don't foresee any of that. And I'm not including Brian Kelly. I'm not including Lincoln Riley in this conversation because I don't think there's any world in which those guys could be fired for on-field performance. That just cannot happen. But if one Did of you those... see uh, Mike Farrell or whatever put Brian Kelly on his hot seat list going into was, this year? I was worried you were going to bring that up. Um, I thought I was reading Will Farrell, bro. I was like, are you serious? Like, you're being serious right now. Did you see the record? Six and seven, seven and six, seven, five and seven. 10 and three. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah. Ten, yeah. Brian Kelly, after winning the West, beating Saban in year one. Uh, no, not in the hot seat. Not even going to entertain that thought because it's just ridiculous. But mm-hmm. if one of those other places of Florida and Oklahoma, if we're talking about a Miami or if we're talking, I mean, Notre Dame, again, it's not going to open up. But 
that would create chaos and we would get some big time poachings, much like what we saw with Brian Kelly, Lincoln Riley. That would be the premier job if it were to open up. I don't think it'll happen, but chaos would definitely ensue if it did. Georgia loses a regular season game. That's another chaos scenario. Congratulations to Georgia. Now officially in Bama territory. If you lose a regular season game for the first time in three years, the takes will be pretty obvious. Georgia's schedule doesn't warrant a playoff spot. Kirby's lost the program. The offseason was horrible. Georgia losing in the regular season would be the scene in Rocky Four where Rocky catches Drago with the uppercut and Rocky's trainer starts yelling, he's cut, he's cut. Bridget Nielsen stands up like this is the first time she's ever seen her husband show any sign that he's not this robot who was built in a lab. Rocky <laughs> hits Drago after the bell. Drago picks up Rocky by the throat. Rocky goes to his corner and his trainer's like, you got him. He's worried. You see, he's not a machine. He's a man. Anybody beats Georgia in the regular season? Fire up the six-minute symphonic masterpiece from Vince DiCola. Let's have a fight, man. The fact that you have this written down in a doc and I'm watching you read it like a script and I'm like rooting for the next line. That was great. That was really the video piece of that was the best part. But yeah, no, I mean, I'm with you. Georgia regular season losses. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, but I think, you know, as an SEC team, I see why Georgia fans live in a little bit of a place of insanity because people do everything they can. I hate to say this out loud. People have done everything they can to discount this program. If this team wins or if this team loses a game, I really hope they're not taking out of any conversation because they should be at that point where it almost, not that it doesn't matter, but it's like, you guys have already won twice. Like give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt, you know? I agree. And that's like, if you're saying Georgia losing one regular season game is out of the playoff and you're ignoring the fact that like Georgia could just win the sec still, then I I don't really, I don't really get that conversation. Now, if Georgia's sitting there 11 one, they don't have a path to an sec championship because maybe like if Tennessee has one of those years or something like that, and they can't even get there, that would change the conversation because of potential lack of quality wins. But again, like we say that a schedule is weak going into a year. Let's see how it actually plays out. Let's see how the East looks. Let's see how this 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 looks in late November as opposed to making sweeping declarations about it in mid-August. Late August, I guess it is. Okay, another one. Uh, less Rocky quotes in this one, I promise. Caleb Williams actually repeats as a Heisman winner. Oh my God, bro. <laughs> this is chaotic. Okay. Because for for a couple of reasons, because you could say that's actually a boring result. He's the he's the preseason Heisman favorite, as he probably should be. But for nearly 50 years, nobody has been in Archie Griffin territory. Repeating feels so elusive because it is. Here's the stat to tell your buddies. And I, I, I had to look this up because I've wondered about this for a while. And for whatever reason, I've just never sat down for 10 minutes and looked this up. How many times since Archie Griffin repeated in 1976, how many times has the Heisman Trophy winner come back for another year of school? 12. Um, Yeah, I was about to say, I'm looking at it. But yeah, it feels like more, right? But yeah, and all of those seasons are always the media builds you up and then breaks you back down. I kind of see the path over and over again, you know? Here's why it feels like more. From 1977 to 2002, it only happened twice. That's Mm. it, which is crazy. And it has happened 10 times in the last 20 seasons. So essentially every other year we get a Heisman trophy winner who comes back. And so much of that shifted because when Tebow became the first sophomore to win the Heisman in 2007, that opened the door for underclassmen to finally win the award. We've now mm-hmm. seen eight second year players win the award. I was a little bit bothered when they're, they, and I get it. Johnny Manziel was a red shirt. For, he was technically 
a freshman, the first freshman to win the Heisman, but it's like, he's a second year player. He's a second year player. Mm -hmm. Don't make it seem like he just showed up on campus and won the Heisman trophy. They kind of totally glossed over his redshirt season because he was in trouble, but whatever. Um, The way the Heisman works is there's got to be someone to break through and then the floodgates open up. If Caleb Williams actually repeats by, I think, winning the Pac-12, getting USC to the playoff, it would be considered boring, but it would it would expand what we think is possible of the award, and it would at least set him up to where, like, if nobody else has that breakthrough type season, and if we're talking about a fifty touchdown season from Caleb Williams, and he does those two things, lead USC to that redemption victory against Utah, get him to a Pac twelve championship, and then get them to the college football playoff, it's probably going to make a really good argument for him, and there will be some who are like wow, is Caleb Williams really about to become the first guy to repeat as a Heisman Trophy winner in nearly half a century? That'll be the conversation. But if he does, that changes the game for how we view underclassmen because it makes it seem like, okay, this can actually happen and we don't have to put this on such a pedestal. I feel like my res- my reservation there is just that I think he is the worst Heisman winner I've seen. I don't know. Like the dude became the favorite to win the Heisman to where there was no real other option and then immediately lost to Utah for a second time in a blowout and then lost to Tulane. I just feel like the vibes around him, like if there was a guy I would ever pick to do this, it wouldn't be him because I think he just won the Heisman in absence of anyone else. Because, okay, I love that you made that point about underclassmen. I feel like the media made all these rules and then realized they were made up. Like, okay, underclassmen can't win the Heisman. Then one of them does and they realize, oh my gosh, now we get all these stories out of guys coming back to college. And so, boom, then we get – Every Heisman winner is an underclassman because now it's the new fun thing. Now we don't have this weird Scott Skiles mentality of like, oh, the young guys got to pay their dues. But like Caleb Williams, like it's one of those like there has to be a Heisman trophy at the end of the year. And unfortunately, this year it just ended up here where you have a guy that just didn't really do anything. Like I'm not being mean, but it's like, what was his big win? I mean, I I still think that. You can make the case he had, a, he had a really, really good year, and his numbers were were insanely good. And he actually improved against the top twenty five competition, the top sixty defenses. The stat that I kept bringing up about why mm-hmm. why there was that skepticism there, but I still think I mean dominated Notre Dame. Take that for what it is. I had that Ooh. feeling. Oh, him and Marshall. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I still had that feeling after watching that Utah game where they lose to Utah in the Pac-12 championship. Yeah, he's banged up in the second half. I still think Utah wins that game, even if he's healthy. But after that game where I'm like, it's kind of weird. This is the first year I've had a Heisman vote, but I still can't make it a better argument for anybody besides him. Like it was just one of those years. And so now the way that he can sort of avenge that is that's like, that's his Heisman path is getting USC to a place that it hasn't been before and repeating the numbers that he had last year, which his numbers were insanely good, man. And like, go back and look at some of the throws. I mean, they were fine as a Lincoln Riley quarterback. He wasn't better than Baker or Kyler though. Right. But it's, it's like, it's like on, if you're on par with them, I mean, those guys won a Heisman trophy. Yeah, no, those guys, but I'm just saying, who am I comparing you to? I'm comparing you to other Lincoln Riley quarterbacks. You're, you know, I I think that Jalen was better than him. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But Joe Burrow just happened to be there. You know what I'm saying? So it's like one of those things where it's like, it's all, Heisman's all about competition. And we've seen so many razor thin Heisman votes. And last year just simply was not one. We just had to give out the trophy to someone. So him repeating would be the most insane repeat ever because we've seen Trevor Lawrence have an amazing year and not get it. We've seen you know, Tim Tebow come back and not get it. So I don't know if this is where they choose to break that tradition. I'm going to be kind of upset unless he throws for 80 touchdowns, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, which would totally make sense. It would be chaotic if that happened. 
Another mm-hmm. one. Uh, we've talked a lot about this, but AM, A&M collapses and the Jimbo coup begins. That's I, I'm not going to pull out the Iowa notepad. I've got a different one here. I'm not going to pull it out. You know the numbers. They are not paying $76.8 million for Jimbo Fisher not to work. <laughs> They're not doing it. They're not, okay? Like, clip it. I don't care. I do not care. They're not paying $76.8 million. They're just not going to do it. But if they go five and seven, which if they repeat what they did last year, if the Petrino thing is just a disaster, Jimbo looks like he's lost his mind every time he opens his mouth, the coup's coming. Like, it, it is coming. I'm sure you can find some sort of internal way to get Fisher fired especially after they just shut down the 12th man NIL collective. I am. There are some skeletons probably there that if you really wanted to dig them up and not wait on the NCAA to come around five years later, you could probably find it. And apparently a lot of these schools right now are, are, are realizing, Oh, the NCAA is actually looking into this and you can't just have players who are getting paid money to do nothing. You actually Mm -hmm. need to have them doing a service to be able to make this NIL money. Whatever the case, it would create chaos from a standpoint of we would have an epic legal battle with AM and Jimbo Fisher. It would be much different than Jeremy Pruitt trying to get 12 million bucks over $70,000 worth of benefits from Tennessee. Like that, that would be entirely different. And I, I don't know how exactly they would go about that, but I don't think AM is about to do this because that would essentially be the equivalent of saying the week before your 20-year high school reunion, I'm going to go get a face tattoo. I don't think AM's going to do that. AM wants to look just fine as it joins, well, rejoins with Texas in a conference. You're not going to mm-hmm. show up with a face tattoo. Having a coup to get your $76.8 million coach fired would be showing up with a face tattoo. Yeah. If you have ever seen someone with a face tattoo and had a conversation with them that lasted more than a minute and not brought up their face tattoo. Me? Um, see, I'd be in the golf girls. So I'd be talking to people with face tattoos. I try to not bring it up because then I seem like an, I'm an outlier. I'm like, oh, the face tattoo is normal to me. Don't worry. You're not scaring me. That's my play. You wait a minute. We just, you just ran right over that. You've had several conversations with women who have face tattoos and you have been mature enough to ignore it is what you're telling me. Yeah. Cause they want you to talk about it. That's the trap. It's like, once you talk about the face tattoo, then you're not cool. And they got a little edge over you. You just got to pretend like it's normal. That's the play. Okay. So you are being the alpha in this situation, not the beta. <laughs> I mean, not necessarily the alpha, just, you know, if you're one of those people that sees a face tattoo and you're like, Oh my God, face tattoo, you're doing what they want. And for me, I'm like, well, now you just look silly. Cause I'm not going to do that. And now you're just going to be sitting there with a face tattoo. I, I would be the beta who would look at them and I would do exactly what they would want. And I would ask them about their face <laughs> tattoo. So that's the difference between you and I. Hey, okay. uh, Connor, are you taking Jimbo, Sark, or uh, Vendables right now? Taking them for a year? Taking them for five years? Just Con- what like, to Take the contract out if you, had to, if you had to have one today. If I had to have one today, give me Sark. Yeah, okay. give me Sark. Um, okay. I think Sark has the best way to troubleshoot of those guys. And I think even if we're talking about a somewhat disappointing season this year, depends how disappointing we're talking. I'm still like, I got that guy on my sideline calling plays. And even though he's a psycho, he's an absolute psycho. That video before the Texas bowl last year is (laughs) 
freaking nuts um, just going off in the security guard. But I would still probably trust him more. Do we know if Brent Venables is a good coach yet? Do we do we know that? Like uh, we all were sure when he got hired, and after a year, we'll give him another year because it seems yeah. like everywhere he's right. been, he's figured it out. Yeah, but we we just don't know if he's a good head coach yet. We know he's an awesome coordinator. We know he's fantastic, but yeah. And in the Jimbo thing, this is the last year for up. This is this is the ultimatum. We we know that. So yeah, I'd probably go with Sark by default. But it's again a little bit <laughs> Caleb Williams Heisman Trophy esque of. I don't feel great about those three guys. Like I'm not like sitting here banging the drum for any of them at this point. That's like the TikTok meme with the inflections is like with Sark. It's like, you know, you got that guy on the sidelines calling plays. And with Jimbo, it's like, you got that guy on the sidelines calling plays. <laughs> anyway. tone, tone is very, very different with those yeah. two right now. Okay, another chaos scenario. Florida State pays to get out of the ACC's grant of rights. It's not so much like what Matt Hayes talked about. It's not so much that people would be chomping at the bit to get Florida state in their conference. It's not like all of a sudden the sec and the big 10 would be instantly saying, Hey, you need to come on board, but it would create a lot of questions about what they're about to do. Maybe go independent, or are they going to join a different conference? Who knows? Maybe the big 12 would, would be willing to, to kind of see what that would look like. I don't know that UCF would be on board with that, but I don't know that that matters that much. You would also have a bunch of other ACC schools watching really closely just to see if Florida State could really do this. And if they made the financially beneficial decision and if they deem, okay, this was worth the risk, then all of a sudden, who knows, maybe you get other ACC schools that are willing to say, yep, we'll cut you this big check. We want to get out of this contract. It's not worth it. The numbers in the ACC are about to change again. If they expand, as Ross Dellinger reported, is on the table, perhaps an additional $72 million to go around if Cal, Stanford, SMU join the ACC, TBD on that. But still, even with that, even with the whole like incentive, you know, performance-based revenue shares and how that's going to work in the ACC, if they do try and get out, it would be just really interesting if all of a sudden Florida State is about to close in on its best season of the post-Jimbo Fisher era. And they're like, yep, we're going to bite the bullet. We're going to bounce. See you later, ACC. We're going to pay this big check. That would be chaos. Mm-hmm. Will, I'm going to get to one that I know you like here. I saved this. All right. I saved it for late. Chaos scenario number nine is LSU winning the SEC. Okay. Yes. You have my attention? Yes. The Mason Smith suspension. Uh, oh, my God, bro. <laughs> we starting there. <laughs> I, look. I don't. I don't think because it's that's technically not going to factor into whether or not LSU wins the SEC because he's suspended for one game, the Florida State game. I got so mm-hmm. mad reading that Matt Moscona tweet that Smith was suspended because he and Keishawn Booty signed autographs the same summer before NIL became legal. So that the NCAA is like, wait a minute, two years after the fact, we got to make sure that this punishment is carried out. And I realize like the booty suspension happened last year. So apparently they had known about this for a little while, but still, I mean, for, for doing something that became legal so quickly thereafter on the list of priorities for the NCAA, how was I mean, that like we there? talked about, we got life wallet running a Ponzi scheme. We got Jimbo and the NIL collective over here committing massive tax fraud. And then we have Mason Smith, who's just trying to play football. And of course he is number a one. We got to deal with every conference is imploding. Okay. We have like all these ridiculous head coaching salaries, everything about the sport that they should be in charge of is fundamentally broken. So what do they do? They just go back to the old reliables. Like it's just to spend a kid for science. Of two years ago. But here's where LSU actually messed up on this because if, and 
Booty served his suspension last year, right? So like there was uh, an instance which uh, Kelly said that Brian Kelly said like he was out with the flu or something. I think that's what Moscona had said, or maybe the advocate had reported that. I can't remember. Yeah, that might have been that game. I think it was like Southern or something where they were like, you know, it was like around the time of his son. Booty's year last year was weird. Anyway, continue. So why couldn't you have said, (laughs) and it would have been hilarious to see this, but Mason Smith is going to be active for the bowl game. And in reality, he's just Mm -hmm. serving his suspension and you're not really going to play him. I guess you're taking up a roster spot by doing something like that. And coaches are so anal about that. But you know what I would rather have? I'd rather have Mason Smith playing against Florida State. And then taking up a roster spot for a bowl game against Purdue. Like, why? in hindsight, Brian Kelly probably should have done that. Even if everybody would have been sniffing around right after, we were going to find out about the suspension anyway. Why didn't he do that? I don't know. I mean, if that would have been on the table, who knows? But maybe there was The best part is when you get gamesmanshipy with the NCAA, it's like if you're super blatant about it, they don't care. But if you just slightly try to get around it, they're like, that's ridiculous. So you never know. Maybe Brian Kelly was just like, hey, you know what? We're just going to eat this one. But I'm, the thing that's crazy is that feels like Brian Kelly would not have allowed this to linger if this exact situation were the case. Like, if Brian Kelly knew that he was going to get suspended against FSU, considering the way he's handled this offseason, I don't think he would have just kept it this close to the vest for this long. I Like, just considering that he's open practices, he let media watch fights. Like, it does, it was no benefit. To, so, it just blows my mind that with the NCAA, you try to do the right thing and you get punished, and then you just blatantly cheat in their faces, and they're like, you know what, man? You got it. We don't want to do paperwork, obviously. So the more paperwork you give us, you know, the worse it's going to be for us. You know what would have been so funny is if LSU is – they get ahead of it. They just tweet out all these videos of Mason Smith making his comeback from a torn ACL. And they tweet out videos mm-hmm. that are from, like, before the injury. And like, he's going to play in this bowl game. Oh, actually – um, he's just going to sit on the sideline and he's serving a suspension or something like that. And they don't have him out there with a knee brace or anything. And they find a way to essentially mock the NCAA and say that he is serving his suspension, even though the, the NCAA would be the only ones who would know that nobody else would, would know that this is actually just making a mockery. But anyways, we don't need to talk mm-hmm. um, at length about that. It's ridiculous. But LSU winning the SEC would be pure chaos. Besides the fact that whenever LSU competes for a national championship, it's usually a year that's loaded with drama. Why is that? You know, it's like whenever Tua gets hurt, it's always the most dramatic thing in the world. When LSU wins a national championship, it's always this epic season that it feels like we just have wild storylines all over the place. And it's something historic, something very memorable. I don't know why. They're the kings of chaos. They're like Bane. When the chaos comes out, other teams are like, oh no, chaos. Louisiana's like, our whole state is sinking, brother. We have hurricanes. We don't even have counties. We have parishes. We're used to the chaos. We were born in the darkness. I listened to uh, the true crime podcast, um, Counterclock, and they kept referring to the parish in Louisiana. It was about a murder um, that happened in New Orleans. I realize I'm getting really sidetracked here. And they kept referring to to the parish. And I kept thinking to myself, like, this is this is a very different different definition than when I than what I was thinking that they were talking about. And then I eventually had to look it up. I was like, oh yeah, they have, they have parishes in Louisiana. So mm-hmm. good reminder of that. Um anyway, what are we talking about? Oh yeah, LSU winning the SEC is chaos because they would have to get through Bama and Georgia, right? Technically, you could lose to Bama and still make the SEC championship in the scenario. In, in a couple of different scenarios, but obviously you're assuming that you're going to have to be better than Bama in SEC play and very likely beat Georgia in an SEC championship scenario. Would that give us takes of Bama is being laid to rest? Yes. 
would potentially beating Georgia in the SEC championship keep the dogs out of the playoff? That would be the storyline. That would be the big question. The most chalky national championship winner is Georgia or Bama. And if neither of those teams reaches the playoffs, or if one of their sitting them one of their is just sitting there after conference championship weekend, desperately hoping that it can get that fourth spot. The anti-SEC crowd would be loud, so loud. Oh my gosh, you'd hear them. You'd walk outside of your, your door and you'd hear them complaining about something. You really would. Mm-hmm. Also, the contract that Brian Kelly would get if he won the SEC, Will, it would match Kirby's. It would. 112 yeah. and a half million bucks was the deal that Kirby got before last season. Kelly's getting a raise if he wins the SEC, even though that contract... It's just loaded with incentives. It's like, get to a bowl game, $500,000. I don't know why they worked that in and why it was structured like that, but he would get an even bigger deal. And then the market for college football coaches increases that much more because now we've got multiple coaches that are making $110 million plus. LSU winning the SEC would be madness. Yeah. The, you know, the funny thing about you know, you talk about the contract and everything is like, there's this misconception that LSU is just flush with all this money. I think they're just good at the creative accounting, honestly, shout out Fudd Alexander. But uh, yeah, I think that like, it's so interesting what LSU has done with their resources and found a way to stack all these talent, all this talent, all these coaches with, you know, not a super cash rich state. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think this would be super fun. I think I, I obviously as an LSU fan, but I think that, you know, having it, we've always kind of had a two team race in the sec and you know especially during kind of the mid 2010s it's been a little bit of a one team race with alabama and so i think having that third team is super cool and lsu is very clearly the third team right i mean just when you look at the odds when you look at the predictions all that stuff so i think that that's my hope as an lsu fan is that lsu just keeps it interesting like you said meaningful games in november you know getting that that's my favorite experience as a college football fan and one that will be taken from me after the season is knowing okay an Alabama loss means x an LSU loss means x going into every game with that heightened sense you know they talked about in the Florida documentary every game is make or break and having that feeling of okay well we're playing Bama and you know let's say LSU beats Bama okay we got the tiebreaker but we found a way to lose the Ole Miss and Bama only has one loss so therefore if we lose another game Bama's in like that type of stuff is my favorite part of college football honestly like you know even in 2019 rooting you know, watching the um, Mac Jones picks against Auburn and being like, oh, we don't have to see Bama again, you know, like stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that all I can really hope for is an exciting SEC race down the stretch. Breaking news, LSU fans, LSU fans says on Saturday Down South podcast, winning the SEC would be fun. Yes, Will. Yes, well, no, will. but I mean, if it's Kentucky and they're 11 and one and they, you know what I'm saying? And they're right there with Georgia and they're going back and forth. I love all of that. You know, if it's Auburn, you know, whoever it would be, I don't know, Ole Miss and they're right there with Alabama. I love seeing that. We even saw that situation a little bit last year with Alabama and Ole Miss to a degree. It's, it's easy to for, uh, forget that because of what happened with Ole Miss, but we've had years where Ole Miss was right there where if they had beaten Alabama, they would have been in the driver's seat, but they just never do. So uh, point being, yeah, I, I love that situation. I really do hate it when the conference is locked up way before the conference championship. Yeah, I hate that too. When it's early November and you already know who's playing in the SEC championship and you're kind of yep. like, yeah, we pretty much know, okay, this team's competing for a New Year's Six Bowl. I, I guess that's good, but this is this is over and done. The East, I would expect, is going to be like that if it's not like that this year. And if it does come down to that Tennessee game, which is now late in the year, it's second to last week of the regular season, I want to say, um, then obviously like that would create a lot of chaos going into it, potentially, if it were still on the table and if Tennessee had one of those years. But the odds suggest that that won't be the case. Last chaos scenario. 
This one's juicy. Dabo Sweeney steps down. Ooh. I think we need to mentally prepare as college football fans that some of these household names are going to step down and we're not going to have any notice. I think, and it's not, and I know a lot has been said about, about urban. And we'll get to that when we, when we talk about swamp Kings and stuff about his very sudden retirement that wasn't covered. Which one? Yeah. Which one? Right. He said <laughs> three different retirements. I think uh, throughout his career. Uh, technically four. Cause he retired twice from Florida and then once from Ohio state. And then I guess the Jags was like a little bit of, I'm just not showing up to work. I don't know if those are retired. Uh, three and a half. We'll call it. Uh, <laughs> But I do think that the new era of this sport is going to push coaches in directions even beyond what they're currently doing. And some Mm -hmm. of that is pay for play. Some of that is just roster management with the portal and how that's going to work. And just that wearing on a coach. I had a little birdie tell me that Dabo very much left the door open for an NFL chapter in his life. Which (laughs) I think would be like you, you talk about bad fit. That would be a, mm-hmm. a horrible fit for his personality. But maybe that's just the old never say never thing with someone like that. If there was ever a guy who would say, eh, you know what? Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I've accomplished what I needed to. I won two titles. I took Clemson to four title games. I'm not going to catch Saban. Kirby's running this sport. I don't want to see us slip away from other conferences with the TV money and how that's going to look. And that gap, that's just going to keep getting greater and greater. The transfer portal sucks. Building a program in the name, image, and likeness of Jesus Christ is great. But having to deal with actual NIL is not what I signed up for. Dabo, in theory, would have a lot of reasons why he could step down. And all of us would be like, whoa, huge news. Dabo Sweeney stepped down at Clemson. He could recalibrate and decide after a couple of years, maybe, huh, I miss this thing. I still have a love for the sport. I don't know what I'm doing with my time. Boom, he comes back, takes the Alabama job whenever Saban retires. Because that would, if Dabo retires That's before right, Saban yeah. and, and yeah. Then he's just available, that opens up a, a, a an entirely different set of circumstances that all of a sudden Alabama fans are talking about. And how does the impact, how does that impact the SEC? I'll never say never with Dabo. And yes, I may or may not have, but definitely just take his words to use it to describe his situation. Just keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating. I love this one. Um, I think that, okay, so a couple of things there. NFL, I think, is just not an option for him for the same reasons that winning in the the NIL is going to be a lot harder for him, which is that these old school college coaches don't win a ton anymore. You know what I'm saying? Even Nick Saban has had to kind of step back and say, okay, let's, you know, pay some guys, let's give some guys some shine. And the way that Dabo, as we've talked about, he is the king of kind of like, and not that he's done a bunch of crime or anything. I'm not really, it's not that he's this horrible guy, but he's, you know, had some weird comments. He obviously, you know, it's in light of this like Swamp Kings documentary, I don't want to make it seem like he's this horrible human being when you compare it to, you know, some of the people that are doing real crimes, but the lack of accountability has for sure been there for him. And whenever those guys go to the NFL, it's always hard. I mean, you look at like Pete Carroll, who's a guy that's been successful with both. He's the most chill, you know what I'm saying? He's the opposite of Tabo. Those guys would have nothing to talk about if they sat down um, other than football, obviously. So yeah, I think the NFL would be a disaster for him. But I think that for that exact reason, you know, the NIL is going to be unkind to him. And and not just the NIL, but just the future of college football. Because, and again, going back to the Swamp Kings thing, you know, when you hear them talk about playing Georgia, it's like, we're all Florida Gators. 
when you sign that dotted line and you become a Florida Gator, it doesn't matter what happens. You're still, for lack of a better word, stuck here. Whereas in the, the transfer portal era, not just the NIL era, if, so, if things kind of go sideways on you, you can just leave. You can just walk up out that door and it's no worries. And Davo having the amount of success he's had with that little amount of financial capital, clout, all the things that you can say about Clemson has been very dependent on, we're going to get guys in the building, we're going to keep them here. You know what I'm saying? We're not going to hit the transfer portal, we're going to indoctrinate them, for lack of a better word, and play this one team, one heartbeat style of football. Well, in the transfer portal era, when guys start to get that harsh treatment, when they start to get treated a certain way, they can just leave. And so you start to see guys you know, not go to Clemson as often. You, you start to see that little facade being broken. So I, I think that's, it, it's a bigger conversation about how successful can he be, you know, for lots of reasons, with the portal, without Brent Venables, who we know is a great coordinator, you know, as we've talked about. So that's the other thing. And first and foremost, if I'm Clemson University, I am ready to pay that guy in ranches, Bitcoin, jello shots, whatever he wants to stay there at least for another like one or two years. Because the ACC is in such a weird place right now. And if Clemson loses Dabo Swinney, that that goes, I mean, the value of Clemson is a tenth of what it is. Because before him, they were nothing. They did not have any of this huge donor base. They did not have, you know, they were not near a bunch of stuff. There's no reason to go to Clemson before Dabo, Dabo was there. And so point being, you have to keep him there and keep that facade of, look at all these championships. Look at all these you know, all these things that we bring to the table as Clemson so we can get this deal in place. Because without Dabo, we've seen a bunch of guys go there and a bunch of guys fail. So that's my thing is that a random step down for him. I mean, Clemson would throw the entirety. They would give him whatever they could to keep him there for at least a year or two, even if they're miserable. Because when you go to pitch your school to these different conferences, you say, we have Dabo. And that's it. That's the end of your pitch. But what's but that's that's the thing is like what what can Clemson give Dabo that he doesn't already have? He's got the nicest facilities. He's got the money. He's he's got everything that he could possibly want. And mm-hmm. at the same time, if 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 you're Dabo, you've always like his entire DNA is is built on loyalty. And if you understand kind right. of his upbringing, great Lars Anderson book that you know we had him on the show a couple of years ago talking about it, where if you kind of understand like his his family situation, the way that he grew up, you understand why he is so predicated on loyalty. And loyalty from a university is one thing. And, and he has that. Loyalty is not what it once was in college football. It's just not. And if he mm-hmm. sees that is breaking and that is that foundation that he has built Clemson on, that loyal, hey, you're going to stay here. You're going to stick it out. We're going to build you up. Give us four years. Even give us three years. We're going to build you into the type of player, the type of man that we want to be. And instead, he sees this sport that is just going in a totally different direction. And he can't all, all of a sudden it's, I can't just keep assistance here for 10 years and know that the Clemson way is going to be the best way. If all of these things add up and he just hits this point where he's like, you know what, man, what do I, what do I have left to do? I could see Mm -hmm. a world in which Dabo decides that this isn't for him and that maybe it will be again in his life, but for right now, and it would have a different tone than urban with, you know, post Florida, but there, there could be that moment where he just says, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to sail off into the sunset or at least recalibrate and figure out what I want the rest of my life to look like. I can see that happening. Yeah. And the crazy thing, we can definitely end on this, but the crazy thing about that too, is if he does do this strategic retirement, comes back in a couple of years when Saban retires, 
I'm not all that scared of him going to Alabama because at the end of the day, that is going to shine this huge spotlight on him. And we've seen that he doesn't like that. He doesn't like people picking up the rugs and seeing what's under there. He doesn't like being questioned. He doesn't like having to adhere to boosters and all these different things that come from that. He doesn't like, you know, I, I, well, I, they've, they've scheduled some hard games, so I'm not going to dump on their schedule right now. But point being, following Nick Saban, you know, with Dabo when he was at where Saban's at, talking about 2018, talking about that kind of range, it was like, oh, no, you know, this could be the next thing in Alabama. But now you've talked about all these challenges that Nick Saban has overcome, and Dabo hasn't. And so it's like when I think about D- Dabo at Alabama, I think, well, yeah, this is a guy that might just fall on his face there because – they have all these expectations that are sky high from Saban and you have a situation coming from Clemson where you were able to play most of your games in darkness because people were not watching Clemson Wake Forest whenever they were winning by 30 points. But suddenly if you're playing Ole Miss and, you know, they have Lane Kiffin and he's decided to have the game of his life, everyone's tuned in every week. And it might just not be a great fit for him. We saw the pressure kind of get to Urban Meyer and maybe maybe that would have happened to Dabo if he had more games to prepare for like that. Yeah, and it would it would have to be him sitting out a couple of years and then thinking, okay, I, I want to scratch this itch. I've always, you know, I obviously like his, his ties to the state of Alabama and playing there and all those different things. This would have to be something where he, he recalibrates and decides this is, this is for me, but that chaos scenario of Dabo deciding. I love that. This is my now. favorite one. Cause I could really see this, especially if he starts to kind of get into that, like eight, 10 win where his career win percentage is going down. Fans like, aren't as loyal to him. He's not a God anymore. Yeah. And comes like, you just, you just kind of wonder, you wonder about those things. Mm-hmm. All right, let's kick it to Aaron Murray, a guy that I am very loyal to. Uh, talked about a lot of different Georgia stuff. Uh, Carson Beck, Branson Robinson, whether or not Georgia's going to three-peat. A lot of Mike Bobo chatter as well, which, look, Aaron and I have gone back and forth about Bobo before. Uh, we go back and forth about Bobo again. And then uh, some interesting thoughts that he had on uh, the era of Swamp Kings and you know his ties uh, to the state of Florida coming from there and why he ultimately didn't go to Florida. So here's Aaron Murray. Not excited to be joined by a very special guest, a very familiar face. It is Aaron Murray. Um, Aaron, I, I didn't think we were going to be talking about significant Georgia news other than who picked Georgia to go seven and five this year. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, Georgia gets the news this week. Kirby Smart says that Branson Robinson, running back who has bigger biceps than both of us combined, he is yeah. out for the year. Uh, what did you kind of make of that and the fact that for the first time in Gosh, I don't even know when. It feels like Georgia's running back room is kind of a question going into this year. I know. RBU, which is crazy because I keep seeing all these these preseason talks about who's RBU, who's QBU, who's wide receiver U. And I get the whole Alabama. I mean, Alabama has, has somewhat of a claim to, to RBU too. But you do look at Georgia's history of running backs from Herschel and Garrison and Noshawn and Gurley and Sony and Chubb and this guy and that guy. I mean, it's... They have their, their their claim for 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 being in the conversation for running back university. Um, so yeah, it is it is a little bit unique to to think that they're in this spot right now where you know they 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 really don't have a true number one guy that that you feel like is going to be carrying the bulk of the load heading into the season. There's been some injuries uh, throughout camp. Obviously now with Branson being out for the entire season, kind of puts it even more of a damper on that room. But the one thing I'll I'll, I'll tell you is. This isn't unlike Alabama, who seems like they're heading into the direction of, hey, we're going to go a little bit more old school. We're going to run the football. We're just going to kind of beat it down your face. Georgia's not going to be that this year. And, and, and they're not going to be air raid. They're not going to throw the ball 50, 60 times a game. You know, just kind of knowing Bobo's identity, knowing Bobo's DNA. And obviously having Kirby Smart as your head coach, who's 
you know, a defensive minded head coach, they're going to want to run the ball. They're going to still want to establish the line of scrimmage and establish physicality. But look at the strengths of this team and look at what they built this team around. They built this team around Carson Beck. Kirby Smart's known since the moment, you know, Carson was, you know, introduced to, to the Georgia football team and stepped foot on that campus that he's a gifted thrower and he's a really talented kid. And, 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 you know, Carson is is built the mental side of the game to not be ready to take over. But you go out this offseason, you bring in two of the best you know, transfer kids at the receiving position, Dominic Love and Rara Thomas. You got Brock Bowers, you got Arian Smith, you got McConkey, you got a boatload of talent on the outside. Play to the strength of that. And I think that's where this team is going to lean on. Um, but once again, still not gonna say like this is an air raid, they're gonna run the ball 10 times a game. I look at now what's what's maybe the, the 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 true strength of this offense. It's the offensive line, and 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 I'm not saying like you and I can go back there and run the football, but like this is going to be a top two three offensive line in the country. They're going to give these running backs an opportunity to essentially not be touched until they're four four or five yards, you know, past the line of scrimmage. Like I'm not saying anyone can have success, but these running backs are going to be set up in a position where. They're going to be running into light boxes because of the talent, the receiving position. I mean, it's going to be scary for a defense to say, hey, we're going to commit a safety into the box and leave Brock Bowers one-on-one and Dominic one-on-one and Rara one-on-one and McConkey one-on-one. Like, that's stupid. So you're going to get a lot of shell defense. You're going to have an incredible offense line, you know, run protecting in a, in a soft box. Um, I'm not crazy concerned that even if the running backs are just good this year and not elite, that they're still not going to be able to put up pretty damn good numbers. I don't really like where you went with that when I was an East to West fullback on my true freshman B team. Yes, it's right in the Bobo system. It's right in the Bobo system, baby. Look, man, I that's that's what I would come back to. If Georgia's going to have an Achilles heel, it's probably not going to be that backfield for all the reasons that you brought up. But it is strange at the same time that we're kind of going into the season like, oh, Edwards is banged up. Milton's kind of Milton always feels like he's banged up. Like, what is this really going to look like? But it might not matter. And I was I, I couldn't even think of a of a year when Georgia had running back questions. Would it would have been. Yep. Before no Sean, like is that is that the last time that we're talking about here? You you know more about this probably than uh, I do. I would say I, I would say my freshman year we weren't extremely strong at the at the running back position. You know we had you know we had Caleb King, we had um oh man drawing a cup blank on a couple of other guys. Uh, I, I hope they're not watching this and get pissed at me. I get some text messages, but we weren't extremely strong that year. Uh, we sure. weren't a very good team that year either, though. I mean, we were six and seven the first time you know Mark Rick ever had, ever had a losing season. So hopefully, this isn't a, a a foreshadowing of that. Of hey, if you're not good at running back at Georgia, you know that's not going to be a good thing. Uh, obviously, I think they're a little bit deeper and, and better at the other positions, and obviously defense as well. But then the next year we got Isaiah, and then after that is when you brought in Todd and Keith, and then kind of from you know Todd and Keith on forward there really hasn't been a question mark. So yeah, that's, that's dating back to 2012, 2011 is really the last time Georgia in, in, in my opinion is lacked a consistent and even like one, two punch of really, really good running back. So it's been some quite some time and, and, and Georgia fans are going to have to get used to that a little bit this season, but I'm, I'm, I'm sipping the, I'm sipping the Carson Kool-Aid for anyone that that's seen me or heard me for the past couple of years. I've just been so excited to kind of see, this young man take the reins of this offense and do his thing. And, and I, and I do think you have a, an offensive coordinator, you know, sitting down and talking with Bobo 
and, and talking with people who are also close with Bobo, who has a massive chip on his shoulder. Like he's pissed off, like extremely pissed off. Bobo wants to, he wants to be, he's going to put the foot on everyone's throat and he's not going to give up. I mean, if Kirby's in the fourth quarter saying, hey, let's just run the football and get out of this game, I think Bobo may call a couple of pass plays to get another touchdown or two. Like, that's how much he wants to prove to the Georgia fan base that I don't give a damn if you hate me. I'm the guy, and I'm going to prove it to you this year. So I think you're going to have an offense that's going to be extremely explosive that wants to push the ball down the field, utilize Carson's arm, and utilize those weapons on the outside. Bobo's pissed off probably at people like me who are saying, yeah, I wasn't really a fan of the hire. think that this could be the mm-hmm. thing that prevents him from three-peating and doing something that hasn't been done in 87 years. So Why, though? It, what's, wrong, what's wrong with Bobo? What's wrong with Bobo is that the lack of success that he's had in the last eight, nine years, look, even at places that, that aren't Georgia, I, I, I realize that's what we're talking about here, he has not left on good terms in anywhere that he's been other than Georgia. And yes, he's back in that place. But to say like, okay, and I realize like you have a much, much different perspective of him than I do. But when the argument is, well, look what he did in 2014. I'm like, look how much the sport has changed since 2014. Mm -hmm. And if the things that were his shortcomings then are his shortcomings now, and he hasn't taken full grasp of the things that Munkin did so well. And that's really what this comes down to for me is, I just thought Munkin was brilliant. I thought what he did in that scheme where you could look at like Georgia's had talented rosters. They've had talented quarterbacks. They've had talented receivers, offensive lines, all those different things, but it didn't fully work until Munkin got there and did the things that he did. And even if you look, you compare the 2014 team to the 2022 team, what they did against quality competition and those side-by-side numbers, like it's not even close in my opinion. So my resistance with Bobo is that, Georgia fans are of the belief that he's our guy and they're a little bit stuck in yesteryear with what he did well, which was a long time ago. And making that translate to a team that's trying to win its third consecutive national championship is a different story. But just tell me why I'm an idiot. Uh, I thought, because I covered him a few times at Colorado State, the offense was never the issue at Colorado State. You you look at them and they produce NFL-type receivers. Like With what he had and, and some of the carousel, what he had to deal with at the quarterback spot, it was the defense that killed him. I thought he had some pretty bad hires on the defense side of the football that, I mean, that team really wasn't in a position to, to have success because the defense was giving up 30, 40 points per game. But you never, I never doubted, maybe you can doubt Bobo as a head coach and, and, and maybe some of the decisions, once again, that of the people he hired. But when it came to the offense side of the football, I thought the offense was, was pretty good at Colorado State. Once again, you had good quarterback play for the carousel of injuries that he had to deal with. He had great receiver play. He had put receivers from Colorado State into the NFL, which is pretty damn good and and I would say pretty rare. You go to South Carolina, no quarterbacks there at all. You have to play GAs at at, at quarterback at one point. He got to bring his guy, though. He got to bring his guy over from Colorado State. Like It wasn't like it was totally just on him. I mean – like, yeah, that oh, guy's coming off back-to-back ACL surgeries, though. Like that, that true. quarterback never had a chance to play. True, literally two back. I mean, Bobo kept. I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he kept grooming him to be the guy. Then he would tear his ACL again. He grew him to be his guy. Then he tear his ACL again. Um, and then I think it was really, really hostile at Auburn. And I know I'm, I sound like such a, a Bobo defender here, but once again, like I thought he performed decently well at Colorado State at Auburn. You can't tell me when you when you get rid of your OC after year one and your defensive coordinator leaves 
to leave the conference and take a pay cut that that's not a place that anyone wants to be. And then you get fired a year and a half in. So um, I just was not, I don't think an enjoyable experience for anyone on that coaching staff, unless you were from Boise state and you were brought by Harson over to Auburn there. But even then, I mean, that was Bo Nix's best season, you know, as a quarterback. And I even go back to the Georgia game because I had the Auburn Georgia game that year. And I remember, man, they were dicing Georgia up first series. They go down the field, should have scored a touchdown. Bo Nix throws an absolute dime to the tight end and he drops it in the end zone. You know, third quarter, they're still in the game. Uh, a deep dig route from left to right goes right through the receiver's hands. Like they didn't have the playmakers to assist Bo Nix. And I thought, like, once I thought Bo Nix played really well that year with essentially a hand tied behind his back because they had no receivers. So you go to the places he's been in the SEC the past couple of years. South Carolina had is- issues at the quarterback spot, no quarterbacks at all. Auburn had horrendous, horrendous offensive line play, didn't have a lot of talent there. And they had one of the worst receiving units in, 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 in the SEC, fired their receiving coach midway through the season. So has he been given an opportunity to truly shine with an offense with the kind of talent that Georgia has? Nowhere close to that at all. So I, I say this, I'll defend him there. And I will say this offense will look very similar to what Munkin has done the past couple of years. And I think that's the brilliance of Kirby. He brought Bobo in and, and most likely told him like, Hey man, you're going to be my guy as soon as Munkin leaves the NFL. But I like what Munkin's doing. I need you to kind of take that blueprint, make it who you are. And obviously add a little bit twist here and there. Yeah. They, they have to run those tempo concepts. If they're going to yeah. do what Bobo was talking about coming into that year, a couple years ago at Auburn, where he's like, yeah, I think tempo is kind of ru- ruining the game. I'm out. Like, I, I don't want to see that if you're, if that's your no. resistance, if you're like, no, we can't do that. Cause we saw what it looks like. And when I, I especially go back to that Oregon game where they opened the season and they're running these tempo <sighs> concepts where they're just personnel is interchangeable and everything just works. And you're like, Oh my God, they're just knifing through a Dan Lanning defense. Like it's nothing. And it's unbelievable mm-hmm. to watch when that skill is able to master that. So that's, that's what I want to see from Bobo Carson Beck though. You've, like you said, you've been high on him forever. Just named QB one in the middle of camp, and you got to sit down with him for the players' lounge and talk about what this journey has been like, waiting his turn, like this this moment that is so atypical now in today's day and age to have a fourth year guy become a first year starter who truly was was one bell. Like, yeah, okay, I understand. I'm third on the depth chart. I'm I'm gonna wait my turn. What should expectations be of him? Because my expectations are are New York. Well, he was supposed to be the starter two years ago. I mean, it's it's crazy how how the, the narrative changed so fast and, and kind of Stetson ran away with it. But I mean, he was slated to be the quarterback for that UAB game. And for whatever reason, coaching staff felt he wasn't ready. And I mean, he admitted to me, he's like, Aaron, I wasn't ready two years ago. And, and I think that's that's impressive to see because there's so many kids who do think they're ready to start as a freshman or a redshirt freshman. And man, it ain't that easy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sitting two, three years, waiting your opportunity. If you know you're at a place that you love, you know the team is being built in a way that you're going to have success when you do get that opportunity. Man, wait your damn turn. And I guess it's easy for me to say that because you know yeah, I was a four-year starter and I didn't have to wait, so I really don't know the grind of having to sit for three years. But uh, when you're at a place like Georgia, man, there's no no nothing wrong with doing that. Um, but he was really honest with me about that. Like I was not ready. Obviously, Stetson goes out there, you know, throws five touchdowns, and at that point, the staff's like. I, can't take the ball to Stetson's hands. And and Stetson obviously did what he did for the past two seasons. So uh, I, I think the one thing that is the concern for every 
Georgia fan is, does he have that confidence and swagger that Stetson has? Stetson played out of his shoes. And Stetson's obviously having success here in preseason in the NFL. And I think a big reason is because Stetson thinks that he's the best quarterback in the room. I think Stetson might honestly think that he's better than Matthew Stafford. Like, like he has that kind of confidence in himself, which when you play the quarterback position at an extremely high level, you need that. Like I've been around guys that are talented like Carson, that are 6'4", 6'5", with rocket arms, but they don't have it here, man. Like they don't have confidence in themselves. Like they get gun shy. That adrenaline gets going and they don't know how to kind of calm the heartbeat down a little bit. And they go out there and they can't have success. So that's why we always say, like, it doesn't matter what you look like in shorts. It doesn't matter what you look like walking across the stage in front of NFL scouts. All I care about is the tape. And and Stetson Bennett, who was a six foot, even not even six foot quarterback with, you know, I would say above average arm strength, won two national championships and, and has a chance to start as a rookie in the NFL this year. If Stafford goes down, he believes in himself. He's a cocky SOB, which I love. And kind of what I brought up to Carson too is, are you confident in yourself? Do you believe you can go out there and and win a championship and win a Heisman? Like, don't tippy toe around it. Like, I want you to walk into that 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 stadium each and every week thinking you're the baddest dude on the field. And he told me he's like, dude, I'm here to break records. I'm here to win championships. I'm not going to hide from it. And and I can start to see based on what I saw from him and interacting with him a few years ago to what he is now, he has truly gained confidence in himself and in his ability and what he can do heading into this season. So, you know, talk is cheap. Obviously I want to go out there and see it. I want to see him get punched in the mouth and how he reacts. I want to see him, you know, lead a fourth quarter drive at some point this season to see if he has the cojones to do that, which Stetson did over and over again during his tenure at Georgia. Um, but when it comes to just straight talent, throwing the football footwork in the pocket, He's more athletic than what people are gonna, you know, think heading into the season. You know, he's not Stetson fast, but he can run a four eight. You know, he's plenty enough fast to run his own read and, and get five, ten yards. Um, I'm high on him. I, I I've already put money on him to win the damn Heisman. So you know how I feel about yep. what he can do this season. I'm I'm in total agreement. That's the one question that I have about him is when it comes to, you know, nut crunching time. What does that look yeah. like? And what does it look like when you're the guy who has been told for the last three years, you're not the guy yet? Because you can't manufacture that confidence in the way that Stetson did in, in so many of those spots. And what does it look like, especially if he's not getting those fourth quarter reps, which everybody's talked about the schedule, George is going to blow everybody out. This isn't really going to be a, a, a team that has to play in a lot of those down to the wire games. And what does it look like if that situation does come up in the mm -hmm. playoff and you're seeing that for the first time and you're having to figure that, that, that out. Do you grow up in those moments? Like, was there, was there a moment looking back on where maybe, maybe it was year one, maybe it was year two, where you really had to like dig deep and it was maybe a little bit different for you. Cause obviously the struggles that, that you guys had as a team, you're one, but those moments where you just look back on and you're like, that's when it clicked for me and the confidence in the fourth quarter really allowed me to become the player that I became. Well, honestly, man, I'm, I'm, I kind of hope that Georgia has a tight ball game week three versus South Carolina. I, I really do. Like, Georgia fans want to win every game by a hundred. I get it. I'm also in the, I'm also torn in that. Cause I also want to be entertained. Like I don't get why fans want to go to a game that's over at halftime. Like, no, I want to go to a game because what, if, what if fan, fans talk to me all the time about what, what, what three games in my life, the, 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 obviously the, the SEC championship game for Alabama, 
the Auburn game. And then the one that actually we won, thank God there's one that they want to talk to me about, is the LSU game, the 44-41. to 41. Like, as a fan, would you not want to be a part and be in Sanford Stadium for a game like that compared to a game where Georgia wins by 50 points and you're out of there by the second quarter? Like, that, to me, I feel like that's a waste of money. Like, why do I want to go spend 400 bucks with travel and food and tickets and spending, you know, going up and down 316 from Atlanta back to Athens to essentially not be entertained for four quarters. Like I want a competitive damn football game. So I'm like for hoping for multiple reasons, like South Carolina week three is, is an enjoyable football game where fans are actually in Sanford for four quarters, watching a really close contested football game against two quality SEC football teams. And that Carson back in the fourth quarter, the ball's in his hands and he has to go win the damn game. That, that is my hope. And I think deep down side, Kirby's kind of hoping that it's a little bit closer, similar to what had happened last year at Missouri on the road. Uh, they need that. And I think they need that early on the season to just kind of make sure that they are awake and, and knowing that, hey, man, we're not just going to run through this schedule. We're not just going to run through Ole Miss in Tennessee and win the SEC championship and, 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 and go win a national championship. Like I think the earlier in the season they get challenged, the more success they're going to have later on the season. So that's kind of my hope for the Georgia football team heading into it. But, you know, we had a lot of struggles my first two years. Like we weren't blowing teams out. So like there was a lot of learning moments from that first six and seven season to, you know, even the next season where we went 0-2 to start the season off. Like we lost to Boise State the first game of the season. Then we lost a really close game at home for South Carolina. And then we kind of used that to then win 10 straight games. And had some really tight games like versus Florida middle of the season where we had to win that if we knew we needed to take control of the East to, to make it to Atlanta. So, yeah, I mean, plenty of learning moments that, 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 that helped make me grow as a quarterback. So, once again, like that's my hope. At some point, there's going to be a close game. You're going to have a close game, whether that's, once again, Ole Miss or Tennessee or LSU, Alabama or Michigan, Ohio State, USC, whatever it may be. The more opportunities Carson gets in a legitimate game type uh, atmosphere to 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 gain that confidence the better because you can't really simulate it in practice you really can't because you're not getting hit to me that's the biggest thing like in practice you're not getting hit so that's not crossing your mind because there's going to be a two-minute drive where your first play it's first and ten at the 20 at the 25 yard line you get sacked for seven yards you got to push some fat ass 300 pound yard 300 pounder off of you get the signal, get everyone lined up, call the play, and then march them down the field. You can't do that in practice. You could. It would just be frowned upon. And Kirby would, would probably... I got hit one time fine. in a two-minute drive. Um, oh, who hit you? Cornelius Washington. Cornelius Washington. Yeah. Because he was pissed off because Coach Rick wouldn't call, you know, wouldn't blow the whistle when he, fought, he felt that he was sacking me. So he just said, screw it, I'm going to hit Aaron. <laughs> and he actually did hit me in practice, which then turned into a major fight, which then ended the two-minute drive. So we didn't really get to finish the uh, the practice. Did uh, did did you like make up afterwards? How does how does that go? Yeah, does like that? I was fine with it. Like I don't. Really, I mean, if I got hurt, I would have been pissed. But you know, it was it was it was fun watching Ben Jones, who is the most loyal center in the world, uh, chase Cornelius Washington, who runs like a four four around the field trying to you know take him down. I would pay to watch that. You talk about if 
if if games turn into just blowouts all year, just give me those moments in Georgia history. Just have like a little dual screen, like, like games mm-hmm. on SEC Network or something like that. Just give me those moments throughout the the history of Georgia football. I think Vance would would love to see stuff like that. Um, have you called for the three peat yet? Are you on record saying Georgia's winning a third consecutive? Yeah, they're going to win three peat. Okay, who are they going to win a three peat? Who are they going to beat? Yeah. Oh man, uh, probably Michigan. I do think Michigan's going to go thirteen and now. I think Michigan will win. They'll be the number two seed. I think they they finally break through and win that first playoff game and 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 get to the Monday night game. I just don't. I don't. I'm not a big believer in in that style of football in today's game. Being able to win a national championship, uh, which is why I don't think Alabama. While Alabama can win ten games, eleven games, wherever it may be, they can't win a championship with that style of football in today's game. At some point, you're going to be asked to score 40 points. Look at Georgia the past two years. Like at some point, their offense had to score 40 points to win a game, to win a championship. Um, and and that style of football, and, and they they had the ability because they had a Brock Bowers, and they had receivers, and they had a quarterback like Stetson who was completely undervalued. Um, J.J. McCarthy got better throwing the football. I get that, and I'm excited to see what he looks like this year. I don't know if they had the receivers to to dominate and, and, and win a football game like LSU did, like Alabama had, like Ohio State had. Like I don't know if they have that to go against a Georgia defense that can 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 be physical at the line of scrimmage with them. Um, so that's my big concern for Michigan. That's my big concern for Alabama. So I think Georgia would beat Michigan in that game. Um, but I'm fascinated, man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm 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 also sipping the Texas Kool Aid pretty hard oh right now. I think Texas is really damn good heading into the season. I think USC with Caleb is going to be really damn good. I think FSU with now Mason Smith being out that first game for LSU, if they win that game and get some adrenaline shot into their veins, you know, I think they could be a dangerous team as they continue to get better and Jordan Travis gets better throughout the season. Um, that was my big concern with FSU. Like I think they I thought they were going to lose week one. And then all of a sudden you put a pressure on them that they have to possibly beat Clemson twice. Um, beat them once, you know, at in Clemson, and then have to beat them a second time in in an ACC championship game in order to make it to the playoffs. But now all of a sudden, man, without Mason at 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 nose tackle for for LSU, I, I'm a little bit more concerned for LSU in that that week one matchup. Why do you hate Will Rogers so much? <laughs> for those who don't know what I I'm referring to, I Let love me- Will Rogers. I really do. I really do. I I respect his game so much. I've had an opportunity to cover him. I've had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him one-on-one. I mean, the moment he stepped on the field, what, three years ago, and took took over for KJ Costello, and watching a young quarterback be as mature as he was of getting through the reads, finding the check down, getting through the reads, finding the check down, taking what the defense gave him, and then even like later in the season, watching him versus Georgia, and actually had a pretty good game versus Georgia on the road with a, a – a roster that had what you remember that like 50 guys heading into Athens. They almost had to cancel the game and he played really well. Like he waited for his opportunities when Georgia went into man coverage and said, okay, now I'll take a chance. Okay. Now I'll take a chance. All right. Drop eight. Take my check down. Like as a young quarterback, he was doing things that three and four year starters weren't doing. And I was like, damn, this kid's got something to him. Um, Obviously the offense helped. I will. I mean, you have to admit the offense does Taylor to to being very quarterback friendly if you're patient within the side of the system, which he was. 
I just want to see because he does. I mean, we could all admit he doesn't have elite arm strength. Like all the guys I ranked above him, if you put them all in a combine like situation, he would look like an average quarterback. You can't you can't argue that. Like you, he doesn't have the elite size. He doesn't have the elite arm strength. He doesn't have the elite speed. Like what besides him being a good game manager excites you about Will Rogers? Does, does his arm strength excite you? Does his athleticism excite you? Because for me, if you want to win a championship, you have to have something that is really, really good. And and everyone that I ranked above him either has elite arm strength, elite size, or elite athleticism. I say this because, and I should have, I did a bad job of, of setting you up here. Aaron had Will Rogers at eighth in his SEC quarterback rankings. Which you did quarterback rankings totally in, retali- in retaliation to Marler's quarterback rankings because you were just disgusted with him. And you had him at eighth. And I thought to myself, how <laughs> ironic. Would Marler have him at three? I think he had him at three. I could, I could be wrong. Yeah, and he had the audacity to be like, our, our lists aren't that much different. I'm like, well, the biggest one that I had an issue with is like six different from you. So like, yeah, it's like, that's a big difference when you're, you have a three and I have a nine. So um, uh, so are you yeah. saying an average quarterback is about to break your record, your all-time SEC passing yards record? Yeah, but he also has thrown the ball like double the amount of times that I threw the ball during my career at Georgia. Like, let's, let's, let's be honest. I threw the ball, what, 25 times per game? He's threw the ball... I'm not being, I, I hate when I have to make this argument because it sounds like I'm like some salty <laughs> little bitch here. But like he's throwing the ball 50, 60 times a game. Like that's a big difference of opportunities. Like I'm handing the ball to Todd Gurley at the one yard line. He's actually throwing the ball at the one yard line. Like, come on. I'll give you that. His, okay. The, the thing I like most about Will Rogers, besides the obvious, like anybody that's ever said, I, I, him- I love Will Rogers. I hope he has a great year, mostly because. Then if he has a great year, he's not going to break my touchdown record because he won't come back for a fifth year and he get the hell out of there. <laughs> True. Good point. Got to hold on to one of those records at some point. Just one of them. He's, he's like the sweetest kid in the world. And I, yes. I feel weird saying that about like a, a prolific college quarterback, but anybody who's ever talked to him knows exactly what I'm talking about. He's just like the nicest down home Southern yes. Mississippi yes. type kid. And you can't not like that kid. Like the, the, the locker room loves him. And I fully, I fully understand all of that. You talk about him throwing on the one yard line. His red zone TD INT ratio the last two years is 49 to one. I don't care what system you're playing in. That's ridiculous. That's why I give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt with some of this stuff because, yeah, he throws yeah. the ball a ton, the volume based stuff. We're going to see how this looks in the Kevin Barbe offense. But I'm like, you can't take that away from him. Like, that's right? Impressive. I mean, that's, that's hard to do. That is, I'm very jealous that he had 50, you know, or 49 touchdown passes in the red zone three years. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> Uh, that is unheard of, um, I guess, especially in the era of, of, of football that I played in, which was a little bit more played inside the tackles and then spreading you out a little bit. But listen, he is, he, is, he is a mature, he is a phenomenal facilitator of the football. Um, he's deadly within his hand. There's no doubt about it. And he takes care of it. Like that, to me, that's the most impressive thing about Will Rogers for, for you just alluded to that stat. I mean, one pick for all the times that he threw the ball, one pick inside the, inside the red zone. Like you're coming away with points there. Like that's, that's number one thing. Like you get in the red zone, you better come away with points. I don't care if it's a touchdown or a field goal. And if I know that my quarterback's going to take care of the football, um, that's a big deal. I mean, that's, that's the first thing that I look at as a quarterback is, did you take care of the football? Okay. Were you accurate with the football? That's my second thing. And and he's done both, man. He's taken care of it. He's, he's, he's been accurate. He's taken what the defense gives him. Um, 
I and I and I do think he is a good enough arm to make all the throws. I just want to see that wow factor this year. And 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 for him, I think this is going to be great for him because he's going to get more man coverage. He's going to get more single high because of this offense. It's not going to be. And I think it's. I think it has to be mentally exhausting for him. And because I think it would be mentally exhausting to to know heading into a game that eighty percent of the time I'm going to be facing drop eight. Like that sucks. Yep. It sucks. Knowing that I'm just gonna have to check the ball down over and over and over again, uh, it's 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 mental gymnastics. So I think for him, this is gonna be like hell yeah! I get to kind of put a middle finger up to Aaron Murray and everyone else who doubts me that I'm gonna push the ball vertically down the field because I'm gonna actually have that opportunity. Okay, you haven't watched Swamp Kings yet. I don't blame you. We're gonna get to the the full breakdown of it of it later. Um, was it a because you are the father of two young children and time is just not really a thing that you have available, or b because you're just a Georgia homer homer and you're like, no, I don't need that in my life. No, this is this is uh, more so that I'm a father of two, and uh, the the time for me being able to watch TV is about eight o'clock to nine thirty at night, and. There's no chance in hell that I'm going to convince my wife to watch Swamp Kings. Yep. Uh, zero chance. Zero chance. So um, that's more of it. I got to find like some sneaky time during the day to to watch it, which is hard now because there's just so much prep to get ready for the season. I don't really have a ton of time to do it. Uh, but you have to remember, like I'm from Florida. I, I grew up in Tampa. Like I grew up watching and going to those games of those 06 to 08 teams. Like to be honest, Florida was my favorite team growing up. I went to the games. Like my my uncle was a Bull Gator, which is weird that they'd put bull in front of gator when, when, when you talk about like big time donors to the university, I was second row 50 yard line behind the Florida bench every, almost every single game. Like I was there rocking my Florida gear. Uh, There's pictures of me rocking Florida gear with Dan Mullen. So um, like, I remember those teams vividly because I went to a lot of spring practices. I was in those meetings. I went to a lot of the games so like I would love to even learn more about them. So I mean, at some point I'll probably watch it. You know, next week when I'm, I'm guessing like next week when I'm on the road, like that's when I get to watch the shows that I want to watch because I'll be in a hotel room, you know, all the time for two straight days. Um, so I'll have a better, better, better feel for it. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to watch it. I haven't heard great reviews, unfortunately. <laughs> so I'm not like it's not like killing me that I haven't watched it yet. But I'll I'll get to it. Yeah, because the the stories that we're told have mostly already been told and are already out there. Yeah. Are, is there anything that you experience from those like growing up around, like seeing those teams up close that you could give the audience that probably wasn't in the documentary? Yeah. I have one funny story. Um, you know, I was with coach Mullen the other day talking about a couple, you know, a couple of thought about this and obviously I brought up, I was like, you know, was, he's like, no one's going to talk about Aaron Hernandez. Like everyone loved Aaron Hernandez. Like everyone loved him on the team. Like you will not get a player that's going to come on and talk crap about him. So if people are expecting any of that, it, it just ain't going to happen. Um, so I kind of, you know, found that somewhat fascinating. I remember, I remember how good they looked. I, I remember seeing Brandon Spikes for the first time being like, damn, like that is one scary dude. Like if I have to play against him in college, like I don't know if I could survive. Uh, but I guess my, my, my funniest story from, from that era would be, um, uh, this was a meeting. I think I was heading into either my junior or senior year of high school and we were in a meeting and it was Tebow, Brantley and Cam. And obviously Dan Mullen's running the meeting and Dan would ask uh, Cam a question and Cam wouldn't know the answer. And Tebow, you know, Tebow, would go, I know coach, I know coach, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. 
you know, Tebow all giddy just to, to, just to answer everything that, you know, the perfect teacher pet and Dan be like, Tebow, shut up and let Cam answer the question essentially. And I'm just like, damn, okay. And it wouldn't phase Tebow. Tebow would just still chuckle. And, um, and then after the meeting, Cam got up and they're wearing their white pants and Cam got up and there's like a giant red spot on his butt. He like sat on a pack of gummy bears and they like stained his pants and he's like giggling. And, and after he walked out, the quarterbacks walked out and Dan's just like, he's like, boys, this kid is so damn good, but I don't know if he's going to make it. And like the per example of like Cam, like goofy ass Cam walking out with gummy bear stains on his pants, this physical specimen that had calves the size of my thighs, uh, but was just like the ultimate kid. Um, but then I kind of like walked out of that room just saying like, coach, man, I grew up a Florida fan and, you know, I appreciate all the love. Like I appreciate the scholarship, but you got Tim Tebow, Cam Newton, and John Brantley ain't no way in hell I'm committing to Florida. Like, I'm just going to be honest with you right now. Like this quarterback room is stacked. And, uh, you know, I even talked to his wife about this and she kind of brought this up a couple weeks ago when I saw him. She goes, I remember telling coach Bowen the same thing. Like you're putting all this energy into Aaron like he's not stupid. Like he sees how stacked your quarterback room is. There's no way in hell that Aaron's going to commit to Florida when, you know, you look at George's quarterback room and it's essentially just Stafford. Yeah. Okay. And and you've, we've talked about that before. Like you went, you went on a visit on the West coast, like to, to UCLA and you're like, I want to go to yeah. UCLA. It's incredible here. But then you're kind of looking at the situation and going, nah, you know what? I don't want to have my family flying across the country. Yeah. And it made, it made sense why you ended up there and, and, and not at Florida. But I imagine like Mullen and urban were probably still recruiting you like down to the very end, weren't they? Cause like, that's just the way that they were wired. Dude, Gerben's a very aggressive recruiter, like very aggressive. Like he is, boy, when he, when he sets his mind on someone, I mean, he, he puts a 110% into it. I mean, he's, he, you could see the, the, you know, what made him so successful as a coach. He's a hell of, he's extremely competitive uh, in all aspects of, of being that, that head coach. So um, yeah, like he was, he was pissed at me when I made that call, like, Hey, I'm not coming. Like he was furious. Because like he felt like, you know, Florida kid, you know, I kind of rolled out the red carpet. Like I will always remember, you know, going into the swamp in a, in a recruiting visit because it was the most impressive thing that I ever, besides being in the Rose Bowl with with our boy New Heisel and seeing the Rose Bowl and being in Beverly Hills and be like, it's just LA starstruck. Um, the way Urban recruited me was awesome. Like he he brought me into the swamp led me into like some press box. And like, I, I remember walking in to the room and there's like Werfel's Jersey and Tebow's Jersey and Chris Leak's Jersey and all these greats and, you know, Spurrier's Jersey. And then I turned the corner. It's like perfectly lit a number 11 Jersey draped over a chair with Murray on it. And I'm just like, Oh, like he's like, you could be the next one. And I'm just like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, he was a hell of a recruiter. I mean, and you could tell, I mean, he built some incredible, incredible teams during his, his tenure there. Did you, so he was pissed when you, when you didn't commit there, like he, he chewed you out. Oh yeah. Like, what was that conversation like? No, you dreaded it. I guarantee like calling him oh, and being man, like, oh I my God, it. this is going to be the worst. And like, he was even like, even like really pissy. I remember with my, I remember seeing my mom and dad talk to him and like my mom, like walking away from the conversation, really frustrated the fact that he was not gracious at all. And kind of like, 
essentially respecting my decision. He's kind of like, no, this is wrong. This, you know, Aaron is making a bad decision. Like, yeah, he was not gracious in losing, but I hey, listen, he's, I think they felt like it was a for sure thing and um, kind of had it in the bag and, and, and just didn't work out. You made the right call because he left after, you know, he leaves after what would have been your freshman year. You would have been behind Brantley anyways. And I still say it would have been a harder decision though, even with, with how talented the quarterback position was at Florida, it would have been harder if, if I knew Dan was staying. I think to me, that was still the bigger thing because like you, you can't, as a quarterback, you can't worry about guys in front of you that are older. Cause I mean, at some point they're going to graduate. Like you're still going to get an opportunity. You may not get four years, but you could get two, which is at the time for, for, I feel like the era that I played in, if you knew you were going to get two years, that's all you were really looking for. You know, guys weren't like dying to come in and start as a true freshman. So like, I wasn't as concerned with that. I was more concerned with like Mullins leaving. Who's calling the plays? What's this offense going to look like? And and who's going to be my OC quarterback coach? Because I did have a great relationship with Mullen. Um, That to me was the bigger thing of, of the decision of why going, I went with Georgia instead of Florida. All comes back to Mike Bobo. Just as simple as that. Bobo's yeah. the, yeah, that's, why you're Bobo. the <laughs> yeah, that's why you're the biggest Bobo Bobo stand in human I existence, am. man. I yeah. hope I hope he put like the way that that um Will Rogers is gonna, you know, put up two middle fingers to me. I hope Bobo puts up two middle fingers to you after the season. Just yeah. Screw you, Connor, for doubting me. <laughs> I know. I'm ready for it. And I'll have to get – I'm going to have to do a Bobo fact every pod if they have – I think it's like a top eight offense or they win the national championship if like if that happens. So I'll just I'll just text you probably once or twice a week like, hey, I need five Bobo facts. I need to gas yeah. him up a little bit. So uh, he'll be my, <laughs> my guy for that. We'll, we'll set that up. Uh, Aaron, this has been great, man. Really appreciate the time. We'll talk soon. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. Well, let's talk about some Swamp Kings. You watched it before I did. Before I go off here, what was your immediate takeaway watching this very highly anticipated Netflix doc? Yeah, so um, we talked about this a little bit, you know, off air, but there's a lot to unpack for me um, because, you know, what I've now as an adult come to realize is ADHD hyperfixations. I got hyperfixated on college football around, you know, the 2007 LSU championship, but of course LSU fell off a cliff after that. You know, 2008 was probably the worst season until 2020 um, as an LSU fan. So I watched a ton of these Florida games, like a ton. And I've really loved this team. Um, and I think that my current opinion of Florida as a program has a lot to do with this team uh, in that, you know, I rooted for them even knowing, you know, cause they played angry on the field. You know, it wasn't like this was branded as some wholesome team. And I understand the coverage of Tebow was, was, you know what it was, but I, um, like I said, I just really love these Florida teams. I think they were really fun to watch. Um, and it's a couple of things, right? So I think that there's two documentaries that need to be made about this team, right? So the one that has Tim Tebow, who is for some reason hiding from some type of uh, secret police during this interview. I don't know why he's whispering into a microphone for the entirety of just, that. That's just the way he talks. That's just, he's, he's a very I don't think man. so, man. We've yeah. had him on here and he does not... You know, I was the happiest I've ever been in my life. I think he had like a sleeping toddler or something or something was going on. But anyway, he, you know, the, having Tim Tebow, having Urban Meyer, having the people that were part of the team in the documentary, you're not going to get the documentary that we all want to see. 
And what we all want to see is the truth, right? We all want to see everybody who's been around Gainesville has stories from that time. So I think that this can be one of the documentaries and, and that's, that's fine. But we also need to have the other one because I do want to hear Urban Meyer's opinion on this. I do want to hear Tim Tebow's opinion of this. Um, but at the same time, that's not the interesting part of it, you know? It was a championship DVD. It wasn't a documentary. That's what yep, it was. Yep, exactly. Fully if, agree. If you were a Florida fan or if you were someone like us, like I, I also loved watching those Florida teams. One of my, one of my great memories of, of college was like playing NCAA 2008, 2009, whatever it was. And like just running that Florida offense. And yep. I like Gator I heavy, bro. Oh my God. It was awesome. Percy Harvin had so many touchdowns on my team. Mm-hmm. Even sitting down, I remember like going to a tailgate at Indiana with my brother who was in town visiting and didn't go into the football game. Or if we did, we went in for like a quarter or a half or something. They were playing like central Michigan. I want to say Dan LaFever shout out. And <laughs> I remember coming back to my common room at my dorm and my brother and I are both just kind of like kind of exhausted. And we sit down and we watch, we watch Florida LSU. And he says, he's like, wouldn't it be incredible to go to a place like that? Like to hmm. just experience that. And you have this awe of watching what Florida was doing during that time where there are a lot of moments of watching this doc where I thought, okay, this, this hit on that. If you were a Florida fan, I I don't blame you. If if you loved it, no, no criticism there at all. Everyone else though. And for those of us who have consumed this sport closely over the course of the last, uh, you know, 20 years or whatever, we're like, wait a minute, we're just going to totally gloss over why this complete juggernaut of the late 2000s fell off a cliff after winning two titles in three years. I could mm-hmm. not believe that they did not spend any time on 2010. Just yeah, no, that yeah no. What? See, that's what we can talk about. They didn't. I tell me if I missed it. They didn't have a word about. I mean, really, uh, what Aaron Hernandez did afterward, did they? There was one of one of several things that was that was not in there. Um, they went into a fight with him at the swamp. The, yes, Tim Tebow called it a restaurant. It is a bar. He <laughs> he was like, oh, there was a fight, which we've all heard that story. They didn't talk about what happened to Aaron Hernandez after. And then also, yeah, like they didn't. They talked about the retirement, like the spontaneous Urban Meyer retirement. And then they were just like, yeah, he retired. And then after a tumultuous season in 2010, he retired again. It's like, brother, I want to see the fake field goal. I was the Irving on the sidelines freaking out during 2010. That's what I remember. Okay. I want I wanted to see the Jeremy Fowler confrontation in practice. That was legendary. That happened in 2010. Like kind of right mm-hmm. right early, I don't want to say early internet age, but like early social media age, where when you saw that clip, you're like, whoa, Urban's a douche, man. Like this guy is terrible. <laughs> like all-time moment and for those who don't know what i'm talking about because you didn't see it in the doc or maybe you weren't as locked into florida stuff like jeremy fowler had quoted a florida receiver calling john brantley a real quarterback like other publications Mm -hmm. had gone with this as well and urban just comes to the sideline just rips him rips him for accurately reporting what a guy said like that story has been told but it's still interesting as hell and i would have loved to have Mm -hmm. heard urban comments on stuff like that there was just so, so much meat left on the bone. In addition to like the very minimal Aaron Hernandez mention of like what his life became and stuff where like he even had it. It's, I think he was he like, like shot a gun into a car or something like that while he was while he was there. No mention of that. Um, no Riley Cooper. The Pouncy Twins. Yeah, he just wasn't even like mentioned. And it's like, bro, this dude in the term, again, not a great dude. 
in terms of the bad people on the team, probably on the lower end, didn't steal someone's credit card after they passed away. I don't know why they just treated him like a pariah as well, because it's like, you've talked about Aaron Hernandez and the Pouncey twins. Anyway. The Pouncey twins, the only mention that they got was they were doing smelling salts for two seconds. That was it. It was like, no, because we saw them. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were an integral part of the story. They weren't, you know, they were mentioned. Like, yeah, the Pounceys were there. Like, a lot of people did that. And it's like, there are two Pounceys. You could talk to them. They're yeah. right there. I, I don't I don't know what what the sourcing decision was, but it was it was an urban puff piece. It was an urban mm-hmm. puff piece. Even the discipline stuff, he got the last word on that. He like the the entire thing and the way that it broke down with um like Urban's discipline policy and why he didn't kick guys off of the team. If you if you know kind of went into that with the the Avery Atkins story, which Urban's talked about before. Like he wrote about it in he wrote about it in his book in 2015. Yeah. He didn't write, but in his autobiography, Someone like he did, talks yeah. about this. Yeah, somebody did. Um, basically, Urban explains in the doc after saying, well, oh, why didn't you kick players off the team, blah, blah, blah. And Urban said, you know, how this player, Avery Atkins, who he kicked off the team after allegedly hitting his girlfriend, um, a year later, he dies of a drug overdose. And he's like, well, this is, this is why we can't kick kids off the team. And it's like, wait, what? And... <laughs> That's that's the entire wrap a bow around Urban's lack of discipline, and instead you get very surface level things with, you know, yeah, we went to parties and you know there was so much temptation, but like you needed more of that stuff and more of those details of what was actually going on. Like, all right, yeah, like Brandon Spikes didn't want to go to practice, didn't want to lift weights. Mm-hmm. Cool. Tell like I need a story about a time in which you know he showed up hungover and he's on the sideline yep. puking and Urban's like you're gonna run gassers until you can't feel your legs anymore whatever like we got a couple of these things but there are stories in there I mean there's been stories I've told like where Urban came into a hotel room and like chucked a, a full Gatorade at somebody's head and was like wake up like Urban yeah. would do stuff like that and instead they just talk about Urban was so difficult in practice and he he believed in in you know hard workouts and all that stuff. Everybody already knows that. Like even the two ambient yeah. while sipping a beer thing in his autobiography, 2015, like all this stuff's already in there. And to your point, I don't know if Urban and Tebow would have agreed to do it if you had done the full story, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you have to use them to tell this story. I, I get it. But for the non-Florida fan, man, like <laughs> they this would have been way more entertaining if they had gone in a different direction. With the well, let's say this too. Like, all you have to do, okay, like, all you have to do is sit Urban down and say, hey, let's talk about some stuff that you learned and grew from, okay? And you could literally spin it that way. And like, okay, I'm going to take another step back. I want to say again, I loved these Florida teams, and I am cool with them doing whatever crap. I thought they were fun to watch, and I think that... It's very rare for teams to be as fun to watch as they were as a child, as a consumer. I bought so deeply into the Tim Tebow thing. And I think that I saw a tweet about this. I don't know who it was, but, you know, it's underrated the connection that Tebow had in kind of the grew up in church Southern community where he was like this dude that felt like, you know, he would be in your Bible study the next day. And maybe if you just, you know, if you if you really bought into that lifestyle, you could be just like him. And, and, and like, I get it. Like, I really love these teams at the same time. Urban Meyer is pretty clearly a coward. I don't know how to better explain him as a person because if you're going to treat these kids that have no way to retaliate this certain way, 
okay, at least look back and be honest about it, okay? Which is fine. Like, there are stories of guys' quads, like, exploding in their weight rooms. Like, yeah, there are yep. stories of, like, you know, like, there are stories that are really bad about Urban being, like, a taskmaster and, like, really in ways that would violate the dang Geneva Convention about we're treating these kids. And again, I don't personally have an issue with that. I want to be clear. I think that banners hang forever, and they got two of them. And they're, the NCAA is not taking them away. But therefore, you're past the statute of limitations. How do you not sit over Meyer down and say, hey, man, like, how, like, what did you learn from this experience? Because clearly some things were done wrong. Clearly, you know, we don't have to talk about Hernandez. But let's talk about, you know, the general management of this program. Are you telling me you have no regrets? And he, I'm sure maybe they tried that. But the fact that they didn't even throw a tease in there about him being like, oh, well, you know. Like, I, I think that it would be so simple for Urban Meyer who even, okay, if you're going to take the logic of Urban Meyer is trying to spin his coaching career forward, maybe he has one more job in him. The thing that an AD wants to see is Urban Meyer on record in front of America saying, you know, the way that I handled those Florida teams, I was really immature. I wish I would have punished this kid differently. I wish I would have done this. As an adult, as the person that sits here now, I would handle that differently. A booster could take that and show it to their AD and be like, look, Urban's a changed man. Let's hire him at, you know, wherever. Right. And Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, one of these programs that's just uh, like, like could, could use Urban Meyer. But when you put him there and have him just be like, oh, you know, kids are being kids. I didn't want them to die of a drug overdose, so what could I do? I just let them do a little crime here and there. Like, it's just so disingenuous. And cover it up, too. That was the thing. Is like, right. You know, if, if you listen to, 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 like, these police reports, that would just that would just go away. And, and they just weren't mm-hmm. there. And that speaks to, ideally, this would have had more interview sources for it. I would have loved to have heard from Cam. I would have loved to have heard from <laughs> Percy Harvin. The Pouncey Twins. Uh, Chris mm-hmm. Leak. Chris Leak got the worst edit possible he got a worse edit than urban chris leak i mean like obviously like he's he's had a couple of post florida issues that we don't really need to get into here but still at the same time no mention whatsoever of how good that guy was and how if he's not on board with the two quarterback system when tebow comes in and tebow is this god 2006 title doesn't happen and they just like Mm kind of glossed over that like i'm pretty sure every single pass they showed him throwing was an incompletion (laughs) <laughs> or, yep. or it was a pick and it was like um, oh the offense was so limited shot of chris leak throwing the football and you're like come on man like this guy was one of the most prolific guys players in sec history and meant yeah so and much they, when they, they explained doing. it too was like well you know he was just like this drop back passer quarterback it's like yeah he was a dude who could throw the ball as a quarterback like i'm sorry like and they almost like spun that like it was his fault it's like bro if you couldn't adapt to that in 05 you didn't know how to handle us like a upperclassman quarterback who knew how to throw the ball that's your fault that's not chris leak's fault and uh, just really quick i looked up chris leak to make sure he hadn't had any other weird implicated like things lately and and the the quote all the headlines are cam newton suggests florida documentary should have shown more respect to chris leak so yeah yep. i mean sounds like cam newton could have been interviewed sounds like chris leak could have been interviewed because cam newton gave his his account to like si and fox news here have stories on it so he would have probably talked it looks like because he talked to somebody yeah and i i think that the the approach was okay there, this looked, it would, it had way more urban than I thought it was going to have way, way more. Yeah. Urban. Like it just like, like, yeah, it's almost like I want urban to kind of say a couple of things and let the players talk. But with that amount of urban, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a cover up because that boy love a cover up. That's the thing about urban. If you had just said, we're not going to do like maybe, um, limited, limited urban, which he, <laughs> maybe he wouldn't have agreed to, to like his role in this. I don't know if he got final cut over what this was going to look like. It very much felt like it, but if mm-hmm. you had created this and made it players only, 
so you didn't even like Mullen's role in that, like, I don't know how pivotal it was, but you could have used, uh, you, you still had plenty of footage from, from urban and stuff that he was saying back then that, that would have right. allowed him to have his presence in this, but like Brandon spikes, Ahmad black, Brandon Siler, those like th- th- those guys were awesome. You know, right. Like those guys yeah. were really, really good. And they were, they were fun to be able to listen to. There were 14 on screen interviewees. I, I think there was, it just needed more. It stats. needed more. I would, you know who would I, re- I would have rather heard from than urban Shelly Meyer, Shelly Meyer. I needed audio of that 911 call about the fake heart attack after the 2009 SEC championship. I needed at least a mention of it. Not a mm-hmm. mention. What are we doing? I don't know. Like that. It was entertaining from a standpoint of like, all right, you remember where you were in your life when this happened. And I definitely remembered being in high school and having a bet. I bet like $10 that Ohio state would beat Florida in the national championship thinking because in the Midwest, all we're hearing about is Ohio state, Michigan, these two big 10 teams, the winner of that game is going to win it all. Florida doesn't have a chance. And just being <laughs> stunned at how good Florida was. And that was the day where I realized the sec wasn't the conference to mess with, but like, yeah. you remember like where well, you were in that memo to Joel Klatt. Cause he's still living there. I know. I know. We're going to have to set Joel straight at one of these, one of these days. Um, but I was thinking about this. Maybe the last dance ruined our expectations for what to expect from from a doc or mm-hmm. maybe it's not even just this because people would say well that was just a michael jordan puff piece maybe it's just hard to actually be untold as the netflix series is called in the internet mm-hmm. age is is that it is it just well we know all this stuff you're not giving us any new information and the statute of limitations maybe isn't up for some of these things and some of these people are worried about a story going viral and then they're not going to be able to go into work the next day. Or if they do, they're going to have to answer some of these questions. I, I just could have used more real raw stories instead of, yeah, we went out and there, were, there was a lot of temptation there, you know? Yeah. Just, I think, I mean, well, dude, that's the thing is that the people that know and the people that care, like, okay, you're, you have a point about just like, you know, Joe six back or like random, you know, middle American who doesn't know stuff about this team finding out, but anyone who is in any way involved with this team knows what was up. One of John's friends, believe it or not, was a swimmer uh, who was on that team. And like Brian Lochte was there. And also, yep. you know, they had the back-to-back basketball champions. And I honestly kind of wish like that would have been a really cool segment to just talk about what campus life was like at Florida, because the, the pacing and the way they, a uh, couple of things. Okay. I feel like as weird as this sounds, they didn't do a good enough job describing how dominant Florida was. Because I came out of that documentary, they talked so much about Chris Leak struggling, the offense struggling. Like 2007, they, they even. Like 2007. Why do they spend so much time on 2007? It's like that oh, team I love was. That part. Um, <laughs> I mean, you did. You did. But for the rest of us, I'm like, why are, why are we like getting, you know, doing like a week by week breakdown of 2007 in a four part documentary that's yeah. not that significant? Like what I want is like the we beat people to sleep, like last chance you, like we are better than you. We're going to like moss on you. We're going to make you feel. And like, that was the thing is like, they made this balanced perspective, but the perspective was like, was Florida that good? And it's like, brother, they were almost better than this documentary presented because they didn't go into the beat down after beat down after beat down after beat down. They didn't go. I mean, they made LSU look like Saban's Alabama. Every time they talked about LSU, it was like this dynasty. And I learned through Google that Urban was three and three against LSU. Didn't know that. Felt like every time we played them, it was a nightmare because, I mean, they ran up like 50 points on us in a way. Like, they didn't go into 
okay, yeah, you guys struggled in those seven against LSU, but then you came in and just made every LSU fan feel like they had never won a national championship because the gap was so big between you guys. Like, they didn't go into, like, what the U did a great job of, which was just making it feel like a hopeless experience playing this team because they were so fixated on these little weird, like, petty rivalries that are happening between the scenes. It's like the 09 season, like you said, they spent way more time on 07 and 09. 09 was a team that if a couple of things go differently, maybe they beat Alabama, you know, whatever. That is, they're looking for a repeat. And this is one of the greatest dynasties we've ever seen. And instead they presented it as like, you started off and you struggled. You were good in 06. You struggled in 07. You were great in 08, but like up and down, you lost to Ole Miss. And then in 09, it was like, yeah, we were solid, but we were just beefing the whole year. And it's like, you were undefeated in the Southeastern Conference. What do you mean you yeah. were okay? What do you mean you were beefing with one another? You had one close game against Mississippi State. They needed needed to get into more of the what ifs of that too. And that that was the part that that kind of frustrated me. And and instead it was just, Oh, what if, what if we had been on the right page and we could have, if we had, if we had been mentally right, we would have won that 2009 ICC championship. I don't think they would have. I don't think they would have. I didn't didn't agree. They ran into Saban. Yeah. I didn't agree. He ran into the best college football coach of all time as he's realizing the peak of his powers. I I don't Mm -hmm. think there's sometimes you just get beat. That that team definitely got beat. And yeah, maybe they should have been better. And you can point to the Cincinnati game as like, oh, this is why this team was so good. All right, yeah. They still ran into a better team. And right. seeing Tebow say like, oh, Bama had nothing to lose and we had everything right. to lose. I get what he's trying to say because he's trying to say we're the team who's done it. They're the team that hasn't done it yet. At the same time, Alabama loses an SEC championship. You don't think that you don't think the state of Alabama the second in a row to the same team? Right. Yeah, come on, like get get out of here. Like that to me, the expectations were still sky high for Alabama as well. But yeah, uh, if you haven't read Matt Hayes's piece on SDS, go read it right now. Go seriously, mm-hmm. like it is it is worth your time. I promise you. If you were one of if you're a Florida fan or not a Florida fan, um, he titled it uh, "Swamp Kings: The Sports Washing of Urban Meyer." And it's basically the 20 things that the Netflix doc did not have in there. And mm-hmm. you, you read through some of this stuff and you're just like, oh my gosh, that, that's right. Like the 911 call the, the, with Shelly Meyer, again, like that audio should have been in there, would have been fascinating to be able to, 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 to dig into that and to get different perspectives. Like what else besides Tebow of like, what do you mean you're not coming back? Um, and I love Tebow. I love Tebow. So I'm not mm-hmm. trying to mock his voice. That's just the way that he speaks. But I just thought that there was there were so many other opportunities. There was also the, the the not mentioning of Cam and him stealing a laptop. We talked about that with Mullen and how when I think Mullen said when he came on the show, yeah, Cam's not really in the dock. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait, what? Or maybe if Mullen didn't say that, maybe maybe Brad Crawford told me that when he saw a screening. So what do you mean Cam Newton's not in the dock? What the guy became one, arguably the greatest college football player ever, or at least he did for a for a single season. Mm-hmm. And the guy who left Florida because of crime related issues didn't get mentioned in this document. Like what? Um, yep. There were just so many things like that that I just I, I found myself frustrated. I'm trying not to be too critical. I know I sound critical. I'm not going to hate on people if they enjoy the dock. It was. Look, we're sitting here in August. College football is not going on right now. But Will, right. if if this came out in mid-October on a Wednesday night, we're moving past it quickly. We probably are. Um. Yeah, I mean, okay. So I have a couple more things. But what did you learn from this documentary? Let me ask you that question. I kept thinking about that, man. I don't really know. <laughs> I, I don't really know that a whole lot came to mind. I mean, like... 
maybe the stuff with Ahmad Black being a guy that Urban didn't want to recruit at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, apparently, Urban said that when he got to the Jacksonville airport, that's when all these people started telling him about Tebow. Yeah, so Urban just didn't know who Tim Tebow was. Staff? Okay, <laughs> like congrats. Yeah, like uh, that also feels made up because it's like you're the, yeah. one of the most prolific recruiters ever. You think you don't know about that quarterback who was like anyway? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I don't think we learned anything. And it's like there are people in my life who are like you know what I'm saying like casual college football fans, and I've hesitated to show them this documentary because I'm just like this is this feels made up. But yeah, I think as a person who has made documentaries, I would say I would lean into. Florida was this horrifying dynasty because that's what it was because it's almost being disingenuous to Urban Meyer to just make it into like this all shucks team that was like whatever it's like no you wanted this you made this you your vision became reality this team was a nightmare it was beating the brakes off of people and therefore there were all these issues you traded that you traded a little bit of your soul for that and I'll say this too it's like and they kind of slightly got into this but they talked about you know a fight breaking out in front of Tebow and him just being like there's just so much more. I wish I could have done something there. And then you have Tebow in the stadium, like almost crying because they didn't win a championship in 09. Why did you not ask Tim Tebow? You knew these people and you knew what they were doing and because they invited you at some point, you know, I mean, maybe not every time, but enough times you went to, you went out a couple and all the guys said, yeah, we went out like once with Tebow. And like, I remember my John's friend said, he saw Tebow out one time. You went out with these guys, you know, these guys. Did you not feel that same level of responsibility to say, hey, man, let's have a conversation? Did you have those conversations with these guys and they didn't listen? Because if you're going to portray Tebow as this guy that every time something slightly goes wrong, he's like this bleeding heart, emotional guy. What, what about all the other stuff? <laughs> I put I put that more on Urban, but I get what oh, no, I, no, no, I do, too. I do too, but if you're gonna if you're gonna tell this whole story of Tebow, is this you know they they did the whole the controversy with Tebow was that he was the golden boy, and they put him in situations where they asked him what about the fight, what about the championship, and he was like moved to tears on both occasions. It's like, hey bro, what about the crime? Like, can we talk about that? Yeah, and Urban had a moment in the talk where he said, "We didn't have any leadership on that team," and I'm like, "Wait a minute, you th- who had spikes and Tebow?" You had spikes and, t- and spikes is like not not necessarily at that place yet in his career, which they talked about, right? Uh, and any any kind of went in depth about that. But you can't tell me that you had no leadership when, first of all, you're being paid that type of money to be a head coach. Second of all, you have what you consider the best leader in the history of college football, Tim Tebow. That's that's right. what he's touted as. You can't then default to well, we had no leadership on that team. I've seen Tebow say we didn't have enough guys who were willing to step up. I could understand from that perspective of how that might be a little bit difficult for a sophomore to step in and say, hey, senior who's been here for three or four years, don't go out and don't buy a gun and threaten to kill your girlfriend. I could see how that's maybe not his place. I could understand that. But at the mm-hmm. same time, Urban defaulting to, well, we just had no leadership on that program. It was like the same thing that we that, that brought up. My in brother Manziel and Chris, doc. you are their leader. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, you are literally making millions of dollars to be that thing that you're saying you don't have. So Yeah. Sorry, me. Johnny Manziel's dad. I don't want to hear like, well, we just couldn't do anything. Like he just, you know, there was, there's nothing that we could have done. Where are the parents? <laughs> you're literally the parents. You, 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 have, you have the control. This is the way that this works. But yeah, um, again, not going to criticize anybody for, for liking it. I... I enjoyed watching it. Um, I just, I, I found myself more frustrated than anything else that it didn't get into the topics that I was hoping it would get into. And I'm sure there are things that even I didn't bring up, which just speaks to how vast this story was, how wild and out of control this time, really looking back on it was all the different sliding doors that could have come of it, 
I mean, just like this, this team was, was very much at the top of the college football world. And then, and then just wasn't very soon after that and just went through obviously a very interesting decade plus uh, since then, but go read Hayes. Oh, let me, let me, let me, let me say this one more thing. There was one other completely missing guy that we didn't talk about. Charlie Strong. I wish we had talked to Charlie Strong. I mean, we saw Steve Adazio talk more than Charlie Strong in this documentary. I saw that. And I was like, was that Steve Adazio? Sure was. Um, but yeah, you look at Charlie Strong. This is a guy that was the interim head coach <laughs> before Irving got there. Okay. And I texted you and I was like, yeah, I knew this is going to be a fluff piece. We'll never find Bob. And I love find Bob, but find Bob can get a little bit theatrical. And he says, you know, no one knew about this guy, Urban Meyer, you know. Okay, that's not true. Urban Meyer was like the hottest name and hottest names at that point. But you have a guy in Charlie Strong who, and we, we've talked about how difficult it is to have, you know, black head coaches, black coordinators even, especially at that period in the SEC. And this is a guy that was named interim head coach. He was obviously retained for this whole thing. He's still coaching. He's been a great defensive coordinator, but a solid head coach as well. I would love to hear his perspective in, yeah. you know, on this defense. You know what I'm saying? Because he, that was a guy that I respected a ton. And some would say more than Mullen, who obviously has gotten, you know, great opportunities as well. But Mullen was in there, you know, talking about Tebow and all this different stuff. And on the defense, we really had, um, you know, we had the first time back and then we had um, Siler and Spikes. Were the, were the Siler is the guy. I was trying to, yeah, I, yeah. of course, I've now blanked his name. But yeah, we've, we, we they kind of talked about each other, but there wasn't a defensive real, like coach that was in the way there was Urban and Mullen talking about Tebow. So I wish we would talk to Charlie Strong, not to paint him in a bad light, but it's like he's a guy that has always seemed to get it when it comes to the players. And it just seems like he could have added a lot more. Uh, of his perspective as the leader, the actual leader of the defense. That's another guy that Urban indirectly threw under the bus saying we have no leadership, you know, because when you talk about Dan Mullen, oh, Mr. Goofy guy, like, I get it. I've never gotten that vibe from Charlie Strong. He seems like a, a dude who doesn't take crap from anyone. So it's kind of weird to be like, we don't have leadership. Anyway. Yeah, the uh, the doc could have had 30 people interviewed instead of, I think, like I said, 14. And yeah, you I, I would have had him third or fourth, honestly. If you think about how he was there before, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, whatever. Yeah, did, didn't even have Spurrier on there, which like Spurrier is still an important piece of this because of the the, yeah. the block kick, of course, in in that national championship season, a game that we did, um, uh, for we did an entire podcast on. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, they look, didn't want people in there who would have little jokey jokes. I think like Cam Newton feels like he's in that category. Steve Furrier feels like he's in that category where he would have given you some great stuff, but it would have been disparaging. Like it would have been like, oh, well, you know. Urban really thought it could be me. <laughs> like, you know, Spurrier would like kind of bring some chaos to that. Same thing with Cam. You know, I'm sure Cam would be like, you know, I, lots of people knew about this laptop thing, but they didn't want that in there. So I'm sure they didn't want it to, you know, get the Urban veto on there. Too bad. It's a good thing we have real football coming up. Real yeah, football, we sure I'll do. Take, I'll take all day over, over, watching, uh, over watching Netflix. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, let us know your thoughts. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on X at the SDS bot, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name right on air with figuring out or bold and brass. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Enjoy football. <laughs>